Hello all, this is Ben Mitchell. I play the winsome scalawag Ben Mitchell on the Squiggly Animation Podcast, and I uh, wanted to preface this one as uh, just after we recorded it, the sad news about Harold Ramis hit, and uh, I was a big fan of the guy, I'm sure many of you all were too, and even though the connection isn't immediate, uh, I want to go ahead and dedicate this episode to the fella, because uh, by curious coincidence, there's a lot of uh, Ghostbusters chat in this one. And uh, usually when we ramble off topic, it doesn't necessarily stay in. But given the circumstances, a little extra love for that particular movie seemed appropriate. So uh, for Mr. Ramos, thanks for your good work. You'll be missed. Well, on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson and I'm joined as ever by Mr. Ben Mitchell. Hello, Ben. Morning, Steve. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. How are you? Very well. Very well. Good. Life is good. Good, good. Who do we have on the docket, on the roster, on the what's it? On the what's it uh, this month, we've got John DiMaggio, who you may or may not know is the voice of many wonderful cartoons, but he's also the producer of I Know That Voice. Uh, we also talk to Kirsten Lepore, director of Bottle, and the new film Move Mountain, which is online now. Wonderful stuff. Let's barrel on, shall we? So, another month, another podcast. Another chunk of animation, comings and goings, toings and throwings, gossipy nuggets of news. What would you say moved you the most since we spoke last, Stephen? What a question. Mm. Well, we could start with the big news, which was that the BAFTAs uh, have, uh, have came and went. If that's the correct use of English, I'm sure it's not. I think you get a pass. Yeah? Oh, thanks. What did you make to the winners, Ben? Yeah, I... I- Remind me who they were. <laughs> <laughs> we put together a tight ship. The winners of this year's BAFTAs, obviously, let's go through the, the animators because no one really cares uh, about what Brad and Angelina was wearing. Uh, the winners of uh, Best Animated Feature went to Frozen. Uh, shock horror there, I'm sure. The winners of uh, Visual Effects went to Gravity, which really went to on scoop uh, quite a few awards and caused... Uh, a wee bit of controversy when it was uh, uh, named an outstanding British film. And the best animated short went to uh, the NFTS, who were both fans of Ben, for uh, Sleeping with the Fishes. Wonderful. Well, congratulations to all. Why do, uh, why do people... Why are they hating on Gravity being a British film? Is it because Sandra and George are in it? I think I think that's probably that's probably it. I mean, even though it's three hundred percent CG, and and in fact the the kind of the acting in it is probably the least believable bit in it. The CG was produced in the UK, and so the majority of the stuff that you see on screen is British. So uh, it's been put forward as a as a British film, and people don't like that because it's got an American accent. Well, who who doesn't like it, the British or the Americans? Uh, the Americans and a few kind of, uh, you know, blogs and kind of media people, you know. Right. Well, yeah. you know, like Notting Hill had Julia Roberts, but that was a English film. Like, you couldn't dispute that. Like, just having American cast in it doesn't... And it's not even set 
in England or America, is it? Well, no, it's set uh, 300 miles above England. That should be the, the real objection, is it's not even set on British soil. Yeah. But then it, it should they should make a new BAFTA category, best space film. <laughs> well, um, Guardians of the Galaxy will win next year, then. I'm kind of surprised that there isn't, actually, because all the, the films that people go apeshit for, they tend to be set in space, don't they? That's true, yeah. Or in galaxies far, far away. Yeah, Star Trek would have won last year. People in their Muppet movies. <laughs> <laughs> Children. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, enough of the childish live action. <laughs> we should really look at the, the, the real animations, if I'm going to be so bold, uh, which will probably get me into trouble. Nope, no one will give a shit. <laughs> People have probably forgotten that sentence already. Good, good. Let's let's <laughs> let's stamp, stumble this on. This is them. the least controversial podcast <laughs> in terms of our sort of voice and our visibility. We have not caused a single ripple in two years. I mean, when I say controversy, <laughs> I mean saying that CG isn't proper animation. That's a little bit naughty. So uh, there we go. Moving on. Yeah, there was some more sad news this month. Jimmy uh, Murakami uh, passed away. A man with a with quite a uh, quite the career, um, actually. But the film that that uh, of his that he directed, which which struck me the most, uh, would be When the Wind Blows. It's one of those. It's one of those films. I mean, it gets kind of uh, a word kind of gets branded around there. It's a powerful film, and uh, I think that it's. Probably the best way to describe this film, that that when the wind blows. Are you seeing it? Uh, yeah, I think so. But I, I maybe conf- was that a British film? Uh, well, yeah, it's uh, it's the Raymond um, Briggs, right. uh, you know, style about the the, the two old people uh, in the countryside um, struggling yeah. to survive after after a nuclear uh, bomb goes off. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, yeah. Now that you mention it, I think I had him confused with another Murakami. But ah. uh, okay, yeah, I remember that one. I mean, it was very much a kind of snowman-y looking Raymond Briggsy type film. Ray Briggs has got quite the narrative. He, he does like to kind of create a kind of a fluffy, cozy kind of atmosphere with his uh, with his crayons. But his his narrative is can be chilling. I mean, it's tragic that at the end of the snowman, every time you know the snowman melts, you know that's that's tragedy enough. And 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 if you've ever read Ethel and Ernest about his parents. You're reading like a, a a beautiful story about these uh, just a, a normal couple going through life, and then uh, and and there's a there's some tragedy in it, and um and it's it's quite heartbreaking, you know. It's uh, such a kind of well, I go the word again, powerful narrative, but displayed in in a kind of a very aesthetically pleasing kind of way. And um, and the film When the Wind Blows, um, directed by uh, Jimmy uh, Murakabi, that we were talking we were talking about now, goes a great way to translate that. The characters are actually cell animation, but if you notice, the backgrounds are actually stop motion sets. But it still sort of it sort of retains a, a, an immediate charm when watching, and then uh, the story takes you away, and uh, yeah, haunting stuff. Hmm. And that, I think, actually, when I think about what it was that wasn't quite captured about that second Snowman film that they did just over a year ago, mm-hmm. there was nothing haunting about it. And I think that the moment that you mentioned the ending of the original Snowman, just that sort of like the way it, it sort of moves past the visual and then the credits roll, that moment with the music, there was something about that, especially when you were a kid, 
the sort of the feeling that it gave you and stayed with you and lingered with you. I think that that's something that is actually kind of, it's sort of weirdly pleasing and yet troubling at the same time. And I think that those types of films back then, like When the Wind Blows and The Snowman, and having that quality to it, I don't know if it's missing from animation in general now. I see plenty of, of short films that would probably have had that effect on me if I was younger. But I don't know, I don't see it so much on TV these days. Yeah. Or in features. Yeah. Well, um, it's, it's funny you should say that. I saw it, it's an old film, but I saw it for the first time yesterday. Have you ever seen uh, Grave of the Fireflies? No. Oh, man. I'm not the biggest anime fan in the world, but uh, if you ever get the opportunity, Grave of the Fireflies, give it your full attention. Mm. It's it, it's tragic. Uh, I saw it in a, in a cinema, and there were tears. And it goes on to demonstrate that, um, as I was saying about the style of Raymond Briggs, although it may look like a kind of an easy-to-label children's style, and animation is often called a children's medium, it's neither of those things. Animation is a form, and as a form, its possibilities are absolutely endless. And although it's not a great surprise that we can see such touching, moving masterpieces, and that we can enjoy light-hearted comedies, slapstick, and everything in between, there's often a kind of mistake made that people, because it's an animation, believe that they're in for a kind of easy ride, so to speak. So when they get something as, as powerful as, as When the Wind Blows, Grave of the Fireflies or something like that, it really kind of hammer, hammers home the, the possibilities of animation. And I think that pairing of animation as the, as the medium that tells the story, it comes perhaps more out of left field. Mm -hmm. And I think that can, can bolster the power something like that has. It's like when they kill off someone in a Disney film. You know. Yeah, for all the people that didn't realise that The Lion King was a was a Hamlet retelling and they were surprised when, when Mufasa passed away. I mean, I was, because I was nine, but yeah. <laughs> it's not something that was a, a big part of the EPK at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You weren't sort of like told when you were going into the cinema, now make sure you know the source material of this. <laughs> yeah. I think Disney was uh, was quick to hide it as well, but there we go. That's another that's another conversation. But yeah, it, we are kind of blessed in a way to have such uh, such directors able to to demonstrate that the form is capable of a lot more than than is you know initially perceived, and to have people like Jimmy uh, Murakami involved in animation and arts um, is just you know it's a it's a shame to see him go. So yeah. When the Wind Blows. I'll try and track that one down again, because it's definitely worth another watch. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess elsewhere in the animation industry, more uh, film developments and news and whatnot. Has anything uh, caught your eye of late, Stephen? Well, not so much kind of caught my eye, but it's a thing that is happening. <laughs> uh -huh. whether, whether we like it or not, there's going to be a, a Shrek theme park opening in, in London, kind of based on, on obviously the the hugely popular Shrek franchise, which I didn't know has taken like three and a half billion dollars uh, worldwide since it's kind of, uh, since it started like 10 years ago or 13 years ago, however long it was. So yeah, still hugely popular. And, and obviously there's people wandering around London with just money burning holes in the pockets. DreamWorks and, um, and Merlin a kind of a theme park operator that do like London Dungeons and things like that and um, Sea Life Aquariums. Mm. 
um, obviously just want to marry the two together and, and create this kind of, um, you know, this... this Wonderland. This Wonderland, yeah. Written by the DreamWorks team. There you go. You know, if it's as good as Shrek 2, then it's going uh, to add to the bank. Whereas if it's as, as piss poor as Shrek 3, I mean, <laughs> people might be asking for the money back. I mean, the, the Shrek franchise isn't that bad. I mean, it's it's... I made it to part two. Well, part two, I think, cannot be topped. It's but it suffers from a problem that that some kind of DreamWorks films suffer from is that they're hideously ugly. Mm. It's it's horrible of me to say that, but from criticism point of view, I mean, did you see Turbo? Did you see the character designs in Turbo? I can picture like the poster. Yeah, <sighs> yeah and it's and 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 Megamind. Yeah, I'm not too uh, not too crazy. About that, yeah, the, the DreamWorks particular kind of uh, style. I mean, How to Train Your Dragon looked really good, and particular the dragons and and uh, and that are a little bit more kind of. It feels like they've explored them a bit more. They've they've decided that we'll go for this kind of caricature look, but some of the other stuff just seems rushed almost. Mm. You know, go back to back to Shrek. According to to Jeffrey Katzenberg, there's there's um, there may be some more. Uh, Shrek features as well so uh, a fifth Shrek movie mm-hmm. uh, on the way and everybody knows that um, when it comes to, to film franchises the fifth one is always the best one couldn't deny that meanwhile everyone loves that new Postman Pat trailer I gotta say blimey that's uh, that's some fun isn't it I, I, I love when something creates such a, a reaction when really it's innocuous I guess but people get so vehemently defensive about the the childhood that uh, that they own or of course all the intellectual properties that they ever observed when they were children mm. so any iteration any attempt to sort of contemporize it to preschoolers is is an affront <laughs> i did think it was horse <laughs> you know but yeah i never really liked postman pet that much anyway like as a kid i always thought that was kind of twee and lame i can't wait to see how they resolve the last season, we were left <laughs> hanging on the edge of our seats. Did he deliver the letter on time? <laughs> That's a very, it's a very good point, Ben. <laughs> Funnily enough, the fact is that when you were a kid, you were watching these these animations and these. Uh, and how long did the last? In reality, how long does post? How long does an episode of Postman Pat last? I, ten minutes, okay. if that. When you've got like a ten minute lump of nostalgia uh, that's been loved for for decades. And you've also got the movie business, which can make millions, uh, and you've got an, an audience of eager kids. The formula seems set that you can just take this kind of, uh, oh, Postman Pat, he can be a film star. We've only got 10 minutes worth of material. What do we do? Oh, let's fill it full of X Factor and robots and things like that. And before you know it, you've detached yourself in quite an extraordinary way from the from the source material, from the thing that you were aiming for originally. I mean, I'm hoping that we're pleasantly surprised. I'm hoping, because we haven't seen the film. I'm hoping that the film comes out and it's everything that you clearly enjoyed as a kid, <laughs> um, you know, wrapped up uh, and made to last an hour and a half without feeling too long or too stretched out or anything like that. The way you feel... But it seems unlikely. What you suggest is that we're actually going to see the film at some point. Really, and my my sort of take on the whole thing is it's not really on our radar because it's clearly for it's not even like a family film. It's a film for people like four years old or under. 
Mm-hmm. It's a, it's an assortment of colors. So really, they can expand that to an hour and a half, and you know, have it be about anything, and it doesn't really matter because of what its sort of target audience is. But this isn't this isn't one of the animation features of the year that's going to set the industry alight, and I don't think it ever would have. Mm. You know what I mean? Well, I was ex- I was basically uh, um, explaining perhaps to the people who who were offended by this kind of film because uh, of their kind of nostalgic memories of Postman Pat, that, um, you know, if you want an hour and a half Postman Pat, you you know, just watch an hour and a half's worth of episodes. True, but again, who would do that? The whole point is what I found sort of amusing was that everyone in that sort of moment is so up in arms. And some people would, like, I think you and I and a couple of other people were just kind of, like, you know, f***ing around. But there were a couple of people where you got the impression that they were being, like, deadly serious. Like, this is atrocious. How dare they do this to my childhood? I'm so f***ing important. (laughs) Yeah. How dare they take this thing I liked when I was four and make it for the four-year-olds of today? Those bastards. (laughs) They don't know they're born. I just like watching people, like, you know, lose their s*** over stuff that just absolutely doesn't matter. You know what I could relate it to a little bit, and I was a little sort of thrown when, I don't know, about ten years ago, they made a Garfield movie. And when I was about six, I really liked Garfield, the old comic strip, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Doesn't really hold up nowadays, but I think at six I would have probably loved that film. But I, I remember kind of seeing just, like, the trailers for it and being like, uh, they kind of, this looks pretty rubbish, you know? Like, I won't, I won't be going to see this for the nostalgia of having liked the comic strip as a kid mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. i can sort of like get that whole thing of like you liked something as a kid and you're disappointed a little bit with how it's developed but then you know you just don't watch it there is it's certainly not the kind of thing i could talk about with people like in the pub after work like have you seen the new garfield trailer this is bullshit <laughs> <laughs> well there's there's another example I, I i did this for my ma not garfield but um if if comics, you know, traditional well, was British comics can be translated into animation. And it kind of stems on to this. Garfield, how many panels are there in a Garfield comic? Three? Four? Yeah, syndicated comic will be like panel, panel, punchline. And then on Sunday they have like more room to breathe. Yeah. Because I guess the papers are bigger on Sunday. So that would be more like ten panels. That's generally the way it goes. Or like some comics would be like a one panel thing, like the far side. So it's just like a picture with like a caption underneath. Uh-huh. And, and and Jim Davis's work with Garfield is basically Garfield sat still. Garfield sat still. Garfield sat still with a smile on his face and John's come in saying, what have you done? Mm-hmm. Basically. So stretching that out for an hour and a half and making it CG and stuff, there basically is no comparison. The only link there is the name mm. of Garfield and the fact that the cast Ginger... And that Peter Venkman did the voice. Yes, yeah. That was a weird little... I don't know if that was like a deliberate little, like, sly little wink. I think Lorenzo Music, the guy who did the voice of Garfield in the animated series, which worked quite well. I used to enjoy that when I was a kid. They didn't stretch it out, really. That, that was that was a, The episodes of those were usually split into two, weren't they? It was more like a variety show format. They'd have, like, a Garfield episode. You know, the Garfield... Oh, and they go to that stupid thing on farm. the farm yeah that, that sucked <laughs> well at least you got half of the episode was good for you ben anyway no not really i thought the cartoon was kind of lame as well yeah it was a little better because it was shorter they did like 
it was longer originally. Like each episode would be like half an hour, and that was unwatchable. Mm-hmm. Like I remember being like a kid, there was like a Christmas one and like a Halloween one, and just like when you're a kid and you're embarrassed at what you're watching at, that says a lot. Yeah, I liked the guy's voice. He had a very deadpan, very monotone. He was very instantly identifiable because he had no range. He was actually doing a Bill Murray impression. So the fact that Bill Murray ended up in the movie is kind of, you know, <laughs> Bill Murray ended up getting the sh** gig. Yeah, there was some sort of weird Garfield, Peter Venkman connection. This is the weirdest one of all. This is a little off topic. It, I had a Game Boy game that was like a Garfield Game Boy game. Mm-hmm. And then that Christmas, I got a Ghostbusters Game Boy game, right? It's the same f- game. It's the exact same game for the Game Boy, the old black and white portable Game mm-hmm. Boy. But in one version of it, you're Garfield, and in another, you're Peter Venkman. What? But the level design, the bad guys, the gameplay, it's exactly the same. It's like, what kind of shit are they trying to pull? <laughs> like, <laughs> what is it with these two characters that they have to be intrinsically connected? It's bizarre. Wow. What's well, so like in one of them, you're, you're, you're collecting ghosts and the other one, you're collecting lasagna or something like that? Something like that. Well, no, actually in the Garfield one, you're, you're still like, it's Garfield in like a haunted house or something. <laughs> I have to say, the best video game ever made, just for people who, the hipsters out there who like to collect old, like 80s stuff, Ghostbusters 2 on the black and white Game Boy. Perfect game. Yeah. I will just leave, put that out there. One button you shoot and the other button you trap. I could play that for hours. Ghostbusters 2, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. On the original Game Boy. Track it down. <coughs> you can play all the Ghostbusters in that, and I think there's probably another version where you can play three of the Ghostbusters in Garfield. <laughs> He'd be quite the addition to the lineup, wouldn't he? With his little quips. <laughs> Sorry, I don't catch ghosts on Mondays. <laughs> oh, Garfield. Ba-da-da-da-da. Boo. Okay. Postman Pat. Will you go see the Postman Pat film when it comes out? Yeah, I'll be I'll be first in line, Ben. You know this. Front row setter. It, 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 it'd be interesting to see, really, isn't it? You know, I mean, the, the interest for me would be in the kind of translation, and I'm probably maybe the only person in the UK, or maybe in the world, that would be interested in in how things are, are really translated. You know what I do? Like, over the snobbery of, like, okay, obviously you wouldn't go see a film like that in the cinema, but I, I have watched quite big chunks of a lot of shitty films when they're on TV. Mm-hmm. Like, when it's just on, and you're like, okay, well, let's have a little look and see how bad this really turned out to be. Like Son of the Mask. Yes! Perfect example. Wow, did that one stink on ice. <laughs> the heartbreaking thing of that was how it kind of, like, at one point used One Froggy Evening as, like, a basis for some of the action. Mm-hmm. That would have worked perfectly in the in the, in the first mask. You know, he's watching Tex Avery cartoons, and then later on he's shot for shot what he was watching earlier in the film. Mm-hmm. And again, it was, you know, it was a different era for CG, so it was really quite impressive that they were able to kind of do these things. Yeah, that was just, a. from what I, I caught of that one, it was just kind of lazy and, and soulless. Well, yeah, this is, that's what you said, that the heart and soul of the original Mask was Chuck Jones, Tex Avery. The center of it was that. It was touched upon that was a magical mask and it was something to do with Loki, blah, blah, blah. We're not really bothered. We bothered about Jim Carrey dancing and singing and spinning around and saying smoking and somebody stop me and just basically being a living cartoon. That's what we're bothered about. And that's what you got. And it was completely honest from start to finish. And it was just a, a great film. And Son of the Mask just played more into this kind of Norse 
kind of crap. And then there was kind of gross out things with the baby and the dog. And it was just a mess, you know. You can tell when something is just lazily conceived and executed. Mm -hmm. It just felt like no one's heart was in it. There's another thing. We were talking about comics being translated earlier on. The Mask is actually a comic. I think it was a comic before the film. But it's completely detached from the original comic to its kind of um, credit as well. But I think if they had taken a, a sequel approach to The Mask, but actually referring to the direction that the comic sort of went, which from what I remember was a lot darker, mm -hmm. the very vague outline that the Jim Carrey storyline was based on, that was only like right at the beginning and they got rid of that character quite early on. But then it established this whole other universe and set of characters and it got quite dark and interesting and it was a lot more violent. It was a lot less sort of cartoony violent and a lot more violent violent. And I think that it's sort of better, I think, to go more into the darkness than a more away from it with sequels. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because there's nothing more disappointing than a tepid sequel to a, a cool film. I never actually got around to watching them, but one thing that... The only positive thing that people had to say about those newer Star Wars films, or the Harry Potter films, I guess, would be another example, is that as they went, they grew up. And they got a bit older and they got a bit darker. Mm -hmm. And so you get Harry Potter 1, it's a bunch of, you know, wizards and witches flying around on their little brooms. Then by the last one, everyone's dying <laughs> in the most horrific way possible. Did you love this character? Fine, she's dead. Watch her bleed out. <laughs> Knowing that, like, there's this thing of like, well, maybe one day I'll actually, like, give those a watch. Because I kind of, I'm intrigued by that direction you know mm -hmm. whereas there are a lot of other films that like the first film is kind of cool and interesting and dark and then they make a goofy sequel yeah and then the more sequels they make i remember the first ninja turtles the the original jim henson one it wasn't dark but it was sort of gritty i guess for like you know five-year-olds but then they made more and more of them and then they just the, the puppets got really lame and goofy and it got more cartoony and again it was that thing of like you know you're a kid but you're still you're already kind of embarrassed. Mm -hmm. Second Ghostbusters is a lot sort of goofier than the first one. Um, it's really been informed, I think, by the cartoon series that sort of came in between. And I think that that's probably where a lot of the criticism of that film comes from, is that it's more cartoony. Whereas the first film is this kind of like, there's this very Saturday Night Live vibe about it, you know? Mm -hmm. Established comedians with this ridiculous premise the second one is a whole entirely different vibe of, okay, these characters are now established and beloved, so we have to play to these um, expectations in a way. So I think that I, so that direction I'm less fond of. If a film's good and they're going to make more of them, I just think it's better to, to have them get more mature, you know? Yeah. Oh, the probably the best example, those Batman films that started off with Tim Burton and then... The other guy came in and they just got ridiculous. Yeah, Schumacher. Arnold Schwarzenegger and his ice puns. Yeah. I mean, the Batman idea is ridiculous enough. Yeah. An idea of just a nutcase just dressed as a bat because he's got loads of money and, and kicking people. But then to have Arnold Schwarzenegger make it even more ridiculous, it's just... <laughs> what do you think of that uh, Lego movie? I've not seen it yet. Ah, I've not seen it yet. Well, Batman's in it. That's the that's the link. There you go, kids. 
I'd love to talk about the Lego movie and, and stuff, but I've I've not seen it yet. I'm I'm raring to see it, but I I still haven't seen it. You seen it? I saw it uh, yesterday. It was very good. Yeah. But it, it definitely embraced the ridiculousness of Batman as a as a character. Maybe we can talk about that more next time. I think it's a type of film that's a lot of people are going to take different things from it. Mm-hmm. But to me, the whole thing that was sort of relatable, I think, was um, how the, there's a sort of thing in the world about creatives versus non-creatives mm-hmm. and how that doesn't necessarily need to be a versus situation. But then sometimes people like feel the need to make it like that. That, to me, was what I kind of got from the film. Ah, okay. It was, it was a flawed film in some respects, but I'll go into it more like later on when we, when we both seen it. But, uh, sure. There was way more like, like stuff that was just really impressive about it that, you know, and you could just watch it and watch it, like, and, and just get absorbed in the, uh, the detail and the animation. Mm-hmm. Very impressive. I'm big fans of, uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the, the directors. Mm-hmm. They did the first Cloudy film. Yeah. Which was just a kind of breakaway film. You know, it was really kind of goofy and, and fun, but it still had a lot of heart and passion behind it. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to the Lego movie. Yeah, you'll like it, I think. Well, I like Lego. Yeah. So you won't be seeing it uh, this weekend? Uh, I might be seeing it this weekend. Oh, do you think you'll be able to convince her? Uh... <laughs> yes, I think I'll be able to convince her. I think I'll be able to guilt, sorry, guilt trip her, and if not, I'll, I'll, I'll go with my brother. I couldn't believe it. It was released on Valentine's Day, and I said, let's go and watch it on Valentine's Day, and she was like, no, let's not. Let's watch Iron Man instead. <laughs> oh, bless. If I was her, and I'd heard the last podcast where you kind of vaguely threatened to make her watch Doctor Who, <laughs> I think she should take this as her opportunity to, like, okay, this will be your side of the cultural exchange. I'll go see the Lego movie with you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another film that's that's kind of taken from a from a quite a, a small bit of source material, Mr. Peabody and Sherman. It, it, it took a look at what it what it had, you know, what the original tales had, which were just uh, side segments to the Rocky and Bullwinkle show, and they managed to create a, a brilliant film mm-hmm. without all the kind of extra trimmings that you'd expect from a. Uh, a remake because you, you, you do see it an awful lot don't you you see that a film has been made like you mentioned Garfield also a, a, a past classic has been remade into into modern CG so let's fill it full of celebrity gags and, and stuff like that there was none of that in, in this film I mean uh, Mel Brooks was in it and that's the only celebrity voice that I kind of remember yeah. from it um, and it wasn't like hey this is Mel Brooks look everybody it's Mel Brooks it, he was just voicing Einstein for a couple of lines. Yeah. And it was great. Um, I think that's a great example of of um, taking a source material, something short, something small, um, and expanding it into something worthwhile, but still managing to retain the original charm and the original appeal, really, of uh, of the source material. So they uh, they were time travellers, right? That, yeah. In the original... So that translates quite well to a feature length story. Mm-hmm. If they hadn't, if they didn't have like a, what's it called? The way back machine. That's right. Yeah. If they didn't have that originally and they just like introduced the time travel concept as a new thing for the film, that would be the kind of thing of like, you know, uh, introducing the X factor to postman Pat. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think that that, I really don't know much about Peabody and Sherman. Like, it's one of those, like, old cartoons that I don't think I ever watched an original 
but I kind of vaguely know about it. It's like Heckle and Jekyll and the Great Gazoo. I just know about it because of The Simpsons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was I was sort of vaguely interested in checking it out, but I then I found out that he doesn't actually say quiet you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was just a weird thing they made up. <laughs> quiet you. It's anyway. uh that's the that's the thing about The Simpsons. It's kind of gives you your dose of um American culture. But something else that, that I found in my studies and my MAs was I was obviously doing uh, traditional British comics. And do you remember the Dennis the Menace? Uh, not the American blonde kid, right? Uh, but the um, the Dennis the Menace from the Beano. Oh yeah. Did you watch that? Did you watch the animated series for like nineteen ninety six or something? Uh, hang on, nineteen ninety six. So you'd been about twelve, mm, eleven, twelve. Yeah, no, I think I'd, I'd sort of moved on from the Beano at that point. The original kind of uh, Dennis the Many series, they were like they were like 20 minutes long. And so you really have to kind of stretch it out and add extra bits and pieces. And I think there's an episode where a shopping centre, like a mall, becomes a giant robot on legs and it's up to Dennis the Menace to save the day. Which wouldn't really work in a comic, right. which is two pages long and takes you two minutes to read. Whereas the, the recently um, Red Kite and I think Slinky Studios, an Australian uh, company, uh, put together a new series of the, this kind of Dennis and Nasha format. And that's 10 minutes long or 11 minutes long. Hmm. And they work a lot better because they've realised that, you know, there's not a great deal that you can actually do with effectively this character. And then basically just, the, the, and it works a lot better. And it's, and it, I think it's mainly about kind of figuring out what it is you've got, what you want to do with it, and how you're going to do it. Mm. You can't just say, I've got this character, I want to make a movie about him, because it will make money. Yeah. You've got to realise how you're going to get around that. You know, and, and, and when you're adding ideas or subtracting ideas, you really need to be careful about what you add and subtract before you get to a point where any original appeal has completely dissipated. It's just gone. Yeah. And I think you recently put an article up which kind of did the opposite of the new Dennis series, which is it took a film and condensed it into something completely unrecognisable. Yeah, oh yeah. There's a little shop of horrors. Yes. So, yeah. A lot of the old shows, that series of articles, a lot of those shows are adapted from something... You know, that was originally a movie or a comic or a book or whatever. And I think it's interesting seeing the varying degrees of success with that approach. And I think that was really not a successful show, hmm. uh, Little Shop, which was basically taking, if you haven't seen Little Shop of Horrors, it's an old film that was then made into a musical that was then made into a musical film with uh, Rick Moranis and uh, Steve Martin. And it's very funny, I think. It's very stupid. Beautiful music. Yes. Really well choreographed, really well shot, lovely animatronics. The the villain is this sort of bloodthirsty alien that convinces a plant store employee that it's a it's a type of exotic plant, but actually he's out to sort of take over the world and eat people and feast on their blood. It's not really a kid's film, but it's the kind of film that you watch when you're a kid, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The thing is, I guess maybe they if you're gonna make that into a cartoon you can't have that sort of vagueness, that sort of ambiguity of like, okay, we know that this is for kids, but we're going to say it's for adults. You can't do that with a Saturday morning cartoon. So they had to just change all this stuff so it's no longer bloodthirsty. It's just mischievous. And instead of being an R&B crooner, it's like a kind of like cheesy 
80s style rapper. Mm-hmm. So, you know, every episode has, like, the rap number. They're, like, really bad JJFP songs. Mm. So, I, uh, yeah, I remember kind of, like, being fascinated by it as a kid and wanting it to get good, and it just didn't. It just kind of petered out, I think, after, like, ten episodes. But, you know, like, Ghostbusters was another one. Again, going back to that, like, they made changes to the approach of you know, what the characters were in the film. Like, Bill Murray in the original Ghostbusters, he's kind of a sex pest. If it was sort of like nowadays, the way his sort of approaches, like the way he is with like, I think one of my favorite scenes in Ghostbusters now is at the beginning when he's trying to like sleep with his student. Yes. And so he keeps electrocuting her mate, like doing the psychological test. (laughs) And it's so blatant what he's doing, but it's just like, wow, this guy's just a real prick, but you love him. (laughs) And then he's, he's borderline harassing Sigourney Weaver throughout the film. Yes. Like the first like sort of like conversation he has with her, he's basically like making overtures toward her. It's the way like, there are lots of guys who are just sort of like that, but you can't really put that in a kid's TV show. (laughs) So they kind of make him more of a kind of foil, I think, in the show. But then, of course, what really is for kids is that they take one of the ghosts and they make it their, like, wacky sidekick pet character. Yeah. You know, going back, actually, to how the second movie was kind of informed by the cartoon, there is, like, pictures and stuff online of, like, this whole subplot in Ghostbusters 2 that it's... um, Rick Moranis' character versus Slimer in the firehouse of him trying to, like, catch the ghost in these kind of coyote roadrunner-type ways and the ghost keeps evading him. Wow. And they filmed it, and they just didn't put it in the film. And I guess probably because that was, like, too much saying, like, hey, see, we're we're trying to be like the cartoon. Mm -hmm. And maybe that just tipped the balance a little. Nice. But it's weird because there's, like, one scene from that subplot that's actually in the movie that doesn't really make sense. Which one's at that? the end? Where he's catching a bus and Slimer's driving the bus. Ah, right. Okay. It's 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 kind of it's almost like a blink and you miss it type scene. And I guess it kind of makes sense, but like it makes more sense with that subplot in mind. Yeah, you know. I, I saw that kind of uh, made sense because by that point in the film, everything's going ghost crazy. Yeah, good point. So that sort of made sense, but yeah, in, within that sort of context. God, that sounds interesting. Something that was very interesting in your last art- your, your retro rant article about Little Shop uh, was the deleted scene from uh, the end of Little Shop of Horrors. I'd never seen that. Yeah, oh, that's pretty cool. I yeah, I wish they kept that in. Actually, what a, what a bleak ending. <laughs> See you later, picket fences. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of those films where I, I remember being like, I didn't get the whole joke of like that the woman. She has her, like, musical number. I always fast-forwarded that bit because I thought that was, like, the boring bit. But as an adult, that's a really funny scene because she has this really, like, mediocre vision of what her idyllic life would be. <laughs> of, like, just what would everyone would find, like, really depressing. But to her, it's, like, you know, beautiful and amazing. Like, watching TV, on like, eating dinner on dinner trays, that kind of thing. <laughs> I guess I kind of didn't get this the satire of that as a kid. So the ending just seemed a little too, like, cute for me. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you could sort of tell that like a, they they'd done something with the ending. There'd been some intervention because the ending, the tone is completely different from the rest of the movie. I've never looked into it, but I'm sure that that's what happened with Scrooged, the other Bill Murray film. But it's like a Christmas Carol. Yeah, and he's a he's a TV executive. Yeah, that's a, that's a great film. It's a great film until the ending. The ending stinks, and it's completely at odds with the whole tone of the rest of the film. And I'm sure that something must have happened where there was a much better ending 
and the, someone had to say, no, we have to change this and make this more wholesome. We need to get a little bit more of, put a little love in your heart in it. Yeah, the the whole speech she makes at the end is so like, ugh. Mm. And it, there's a way you could reform the character in the way that all these Christmas Carol spoofs have to have that ending. Unless they do the the Blackadder thing, which I thought was great. Where <laughs> yes. like, he's really nice and then he becomes a piece of shit. <laughs> like, I thought that was wonderful. That's a brilliant turning the whole thing on its head. I suppose I suppose you could be right about Scrooge because it's uh, it's it's all in one set. It just kind of stumbles into the set, doesn't it? From his from the kind of Grim mm. Reaper part, and then it's just it all takes place in one place, and it's just talking. So yeah, it could be right there. Interesting. Who knows? Well, Google probably does. Yes, there are ways to sort of successfully translate an idea. Some of them, I think, you know, they go on for ages. Ninja Turtles is the property that won't die. Mm. I'm sort of amazed, actually, by just how much life they're able to get out of that and how it's really not what it was originally. They keep finding a way of making that profitable. It was a joke, wasn't it? It was just a kind of a a, a scrappy comic sort of thrown together, wasn't it? It was a joke, and now it's like probably billions out of merchandise and films and TV series and what have you. It's um, an extra comics that's still going on today. So, yeah, it's fascinating seeing that uh, story. To wrap this up, I have a, an idea, and I want to commit this to audio. So there's a record of me coming up with this idea, okay? Because okay. then if they do it, then I demand at least 80% of the inevitable billions this will generate. And I'm basing this on three things. One is how successful this Lego movie is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other is that I saw on YouTube that they are making Ghostbusters Lego for the aging hipsters out there mm-hmm. who like to collect their, their Lego movie tie-ins. And uh, the other thing is that they've been trying to make a Ghostbusters 3 for the last 30 years. And the fact of the matter is that's just not something that would work. I think they kind of drained it dry with two movies and the show. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you there. And they're not getting younger and thinner. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so here's my idea. Lego Ghostbusters movie. Well, just remember who your friends are when you're rich, Ben. That's lighting my cigars with hundred dollar bills. <laughs> yeah, I might, I might spare a thought of those <laughs> I left behind. Are you telling me, Ben, that it's actually a good idea to to take Lego and and merge it with a with a cultural favourite? As long as it's not The Simpsons, because <laughs> that just wouldn't work. <laughs> Do you ever think that The Simpsons had run out with? ideas and and created a full episode just where they're made out of lego do i think that the simpsons would ever have run out of ideas <laughs> the lego episode huh good for them okay i'm sure it'll be fun whatever yes. people will dig it you know hey i, I there we go I've, I've run out of energy to kind of like rail against the simpsons people like it let them let them have their fun yeah, some of the new ones are, are being have been good. I mean, I'll 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 defend the Simpsons. They they've been you know pretty good. They've been on the money. So to see that they're doing this kind of Lego tie-in, and it is a tie-in. You know, it's part of a contract. It's you know, and, and and you think, what does Lego really need publicity? Do the Simpsons really need publicity? Why is, why is this thing being stuck together? I imagine Lego took the lead on that one because I think that there's something in the way they've been marketing themselves. And again, they don't need to be marketed. No one's ever going to stop buying Lego. I just don't think they kind of need to. You know, it's more like a celebration of what Lego means to people. 
And I think that, that one of the things you'll see if you see it in the cinemas is they have, um, they've recreated actual British commercials. So, you know, that bit before the movie where they'll just play like a TV commercial or a couple of TV commercials. Yeah, I've seen this. So you know what I'm talking about. Like that, that's just sort of part of what Lego is doing at the moment. So I think tying it with like everything. Mm-hmm. And all those video games, you know, Lego Indiana Jones, Lego Batman, Lego Star Wars, Lego Harry Potter, Lego Game of Thrones, Lego uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, Lego... (laughs) People have completely embraced it. So more power to them. In many ways, Legos and the Simpsons are perfect partners then. Exactly. The perfect union. They just won't give up. So up next on the podcast, we have a young lady from the US of A. Occasionally on the podcast, I mean, the the criteria, I think, for seeking out guests and stuff, sometimes people approach us more often than not. We kind of will have someone sort of on our radar that's doing something kind of in the moment. And then sometimes it's it's just that there are people who are just kind of really, really good and interesting and compelling. And I think that Kirsten Lepore falls into that category. There's a thing that I think can happen with being particularly visible online and having films that have really been the talk of festivals that really like get your name out there. And I think that there are a lot more sort of short filmmakers that are able to have that visibility, you know, and especially now with the culture of YouTube and Vimeo and stuff like that. You know, curiously, actually, the main contract that I was on last year, uh, I was the only one who actually worked in the animation industry of all these other animators. All the other animators were like these animation YouTube, like quote unquote celebrities in the sense that they had a kind of, they devoted like so much of their free time to just creating webtoons. And I hadn't realized just how far away that is from just working in animation. And it's sort of astounding that like you encounter people who do so much work, but a lot of it isn't paid. Some of it generates some revenue, like if they can get some sponsorship, but there's a real sort of passion to it, but this, it's so kind of disconnected from being part of the industry itself. That was sort of fascinating to me. But Kirsten Lepore, like her stuff, she's like a very much a sort of Vimeo uh, darling, I suppose. Her stuff is the kind of stuff that gets, you know, tens of thousands of views, thousands of likes, really occupies a place, I guess, in the sort of online film world. You know, it's interesting because it wasn't that long ago that festivals kind of seem to have this sort of nose-in-the-air attitude about having your stuff online and the visibility that that sort of entailed. But I think that... The, the, lines, that, are, the lines are steadily blurring between the idea of a kind of a well-known animator or should we call them celebrity animators? I mean... Uh, th- th- I don't like using the word celebrity animators, although it is celebrity in its most um, distinct terms, in fact that they are celebrated for something they actually do, instead of, you know, whatever people call celebrities, the people on front of magazines nowadays. And then there's people that are actually just brilliant, somebody who's, who's, who's known for their actual work. I mean, what I like best about this podcast is, although we may have our, our Richard Williams, our Billy Wests, our... Uh, John DiMaggio's, uh, Bill Plimpton's, all these people that, that you've heard of. I like to think that the people that you haven't heard of are just as interesting and just as, as relevant to listen to and to gain inspiration from and to, to appreciate the, the kind of the craft that goes into their work as some of the people that you will hopefully undoubtedly have heard of. 
But even in the kind of greater world of, of you know, celebrity and whatever, like the, even the famous people in animation aren't like famous in yes, the celebrity yes, world, yes, if you know yeah. what I mean. Like maybe you could call someone like Matt Groening or Seth MacFarlane or like at a real stretch, maybe Nick Park. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're not going to get stalked in Asda or anything like that. No, you don't see like Nick Park or David Sproxton, you know, getting filmed by TMZ as they're stumbling out <laughs> of a nightclub. Or maybe you do. I don't know. I haven't read TMZ in a while. It's a kind of notoriety without the sort of shallowness, I guess, of celebrity. You have to really accomplish something of value. Yes. To be known in this industry. You know, get the attention of creepy stalkers like you and I, Steve, <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to appear on podcasts and such. Like, anyway, what brought Kirsten Laporte to mind was just that she has released recently her latest film, Move Mountain, on Vimeo. Check it out; it's really nice. You may also know her from her Calarts film, Bottle, which uh, did very well. It's this really quite staggering film about uh, a couple in a long-distance relationship, and one of them's made out of sand and the other one's made out of snow. And it uh, It's a classic sand-meets-snow or doesn't-meet-snow tale, isn't it? It's the age-old tale, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm intimidated by stop-motion at the best of times. Like, I find Robot Chicken, like, <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> so to, to actually, like, put life into grains of sand and snowflakes is, is you know, makes my head explode. Sure. And she's done a bunch of other stuff that... I think her name's come up quite a bit on the podcast, actually, or at least well, a few times. Well, I, th- I think the the kind the first uh, Annecy I went to, the, there's the, the, the brilliant um, Annecy Plus, um, and I think one year, two of her films were in, the, the story from North America and Bottle. Mm. And Bottle ended... It was the first time I ever saw Bottle, and Bottle ended up really kind of doing the rounds online and, and around the festival and stuff, but obviously uh, around the other festivals, rather. But um, it ended up getting snubbed by, by Annecy. That's a surprise. I think it made it into the Annecy listings the next year, but for it to be snubbed the first year uh, and to appear in, in, in Annecy Plus, which I think it's, it's slightly better to be in Annecy Plus because there's a kind of a more wild party atmosphere. But the story from North America uh, and Bottle, you couldn't have two more um, separate films in terms of style and humour and things like that. And it just goes to show that, you know, this is somebody who really puts... um, They're not restricted by a a perceived style or a perceived design that they feel that they have to stick with. Mm -hmm. The story from North America, that was more of a collaboration, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. she did the the 2D animation in that, but but it really matched the song, the kind of yeah. um, deadpan, sort of handcrafted style of the song, uh, mm. beautifully. And it was a it was a, a great uh, comedy video. It had the audience in stitches. Uh, yeah, mm. it was great. And then obviously, Bottle kind of moved everyone and wowed everyone because you know how the like you said earlier on, how the heck do you animate snow? Pretty impressive. I think it won something in uh, Stuttgart because mm-hmm. I remember. I'm pretty sure like she won an award, but she wasn't there. But they like flew her in just to collect the award. Nice. I thought it was kind of nice. I remember this very tiny American woman sort of jumping up on stage and being very happy, and then disappearing again. <laughs> <laughs> had a plane waiting outside on the roof. So our writer Laura Beth, who has been on the podcast a couple of times before. Took some time to chat to Kirsten Lepore. Let's have a listen to what they discussed. Thank you very much for talking to us at Squiggly today. I'd just like to start by asking you a little bit about your education. 
What did you find going to CalArts brought to your filmmaking at that part of your life? I feel like I was really lacking technically, especially when I came in, because I went to CalArts for grad school, um, and I had gone to another school for undergrad, a school called MICA, uh, two years prior to starting at CalArts. And I definitely got, like, a great conceptual education at MICA, but I feel like I, I sort of came out of there not knowing how to do anything in terms of stop motion, like not knowing how to build proper puppets um, or construct a proper set or anything. Um, so in coming to CalArts, I feel like that's really where, um, you know, I had mentors that had, like, a ton of expertise um, in all the technical side of things and also conceptually. Um, it was just, yeah, it was a great experience being there, and uh, I feel like I definitely built up a solid network of, like, peers and colleagues from the other students there, because um, I just totally moved out to California, not knowing anybody, so um, it was really great to have that Kellerts community there once I got in the swing of things. Excellent. So, Bottle, obviously, like most people, was the first film of yours that I saw, um, cool. <laughs> <laughs> which also went viral across the internet so I imagine it's probably the first one that most people have seen of yours <laughs> also Sweet Dreams was created whilst you're at CalArts as well uh, no Sweet Dreams actually I made that at, uh, at MICA that school I went to undergrad for that was my undergrad thesis okay. yeah, so that was like 2007-2008 alright so both those yeah. films use very interesting use of materials. Why do you choose to use those kind of materials? Does the material choice come first, or does the narrative come first? Um, for an interesting question, because I feel like for those two especially, it was sort of a material choice first, and then I kind of built a story around those materials. Because uh, I always, I feel kind of like weird working like that sometimes because I know, you know, like, I mean, I feel like story is paramount. It's like one of the most important things, but um, at the same time, like for me as an animator and as a filmmaker, the film also has to be interesting for me to make and spend like a year on or two years on. So for me, it usually starts with, yeah, some material or idea that I want to play with that I've never played with before. And so that is exciting to me. And then I usually try to make sure that that's really integral to the story and to the piece and then sort of come up with a story surrounding that kind of material challenge and then so that whole process, you know, stays kind of interesting for me because I'm getting to experiment still but then everyone gets to see the final product with the story and hopefully everyone's happy. <laughs> so you made Bottle all by yourself, is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, do you create all your films by yourself or...? I have kind of thus far. I've had a few helpers here and there for like a shot or two, like some animation of like of people helping me. I don't know, like for my latest film, for example, like the opening shot is really long and really intense. Uh, and I pulled like a massive all-nighter to do the shot, but I also had two friends come in during that process, like kind of in shifts and helping me like animate trees and stuff because there's just so many things moving at once yeah. um, but with the exception of that uh, I pretty much do everything myself probably because I'm really stubborn and also <laughs> because that's kind of how it ends up working at CalArts too oh, okay. um, and, and also in undergrad it's sort of like you uh, like both in the character department and in the experimental department they kind of encourage you to make 
like for everyone to sort of like direct their own films and sometimes people will collaborate but usually people will just sort of focus on their own project and just sort of see that project through and it's nice because you get a chance to learn all the parts of the process you know learn how to edit learn how to light learn how to animate learn like on all different areas even like doing your own sound they really encourage um, and you definitely have to do that on like your first few films that you do so I, I'm like in the habit of doing everything myself I mean I definitely for the next projects probably won't be able to and would love to have like a small team to work on something uh, and I've worked you know with people like just a handful of people on like client projects and stuff but for my own films usually ends up just being me but it's kind of nice because you, you sort of get to, like, you have this vision and you get to produce it exactly how you would imagine it for the most part, um, which is, like, one of the compromises that you're making with working with people. I also noticed that you work in Flash sometimes. Do you enjoy working digitally or is it just, like, a break from the, the monotony of stop motion? And <laughs> <laughs> uh, It's both, for sure. Yeah, I think I've definitely had a few projects where there were stop motion projects and I would get so frustrated with them that like I would get to do something in Flash and I'd be like, Oh, this is like like a vacation compared to stop motion. This is so fun. Because I could just like tune out and just like kind of I mean it's not mindless, but it's like I could just sort of like come in, animate leave, go have lunch if I wanted to and come back and nothing would be changed whereas mm-hmm. it was stop motion it's, I was liking it to surgery where if you're working on a shot you really can't leave that shot for more than like 15 minutes because things will settle um, so you have to just like go like all that time solid without breaks pretty much but yeah the flash thing I actually started in flash like my first uh, like I learned how to animate in flash like in high school um, I taught it to myself just because I'd always been really fascinated with animation but never really knew how to approach it. And so when I discovered Flash, I was like, this is awesome. So I started doing that. Then just like did a combo of Flash and started experimenting with stop motion in undergrad. And then Sweet Dreams, my undergrad thesis, was my first stop motion film, actually. And then kind of just kept doing stop motion from there because I had a lot of ideas that I felt were best suited in stop motion. Okay. So when making a film, is is that why you've gone into stop motion? Is it just more that you have films in your head that are more inclined to be in stop motion? Or is there something about stop motion that you really enjoy? I think it's a mixture of both, but I definitely always consider my medium and my idea and, like, which medium would be best suited for a specific idea. Um, Because, you know, there's some things that could be done so much more easily in 2D, and I'm not going to, like, kill myself doing them in stop motion if I think they would work just as well in 2D. But I feel like I've I've really tried to do things in stop motion that really needed to be stop motion, like with certain physical objects. Um, And I like that, that tactile quality, too. I think it's really... It's really nice, and there and I I love building with my hands too. So it's nice that I get to like incorporate that every time I do a stop motion project. Like I have these moments that are outside of the computer, which is nice. Like where I'm actually physically making sculptures and stuff. So yeah, it depends on like the story and the concept. Okay. So you're currently living in LA as a freelance animator, and you've worked for fake people like. Facebook and Toyota and Nickelodeon. How does your day generally work out as a freelancer? Like, what do you normally do? Um, wake up late, <laughs> ch- 
check emails until like 1 p.m., uh, then eat lunch, <laughs> uh, and then probably get to like the meat of my work no earlier than 4 or 5 p.m., uh, and then usually work really late, like work until like 2 a.m. or something. I've talked to a few other freelancers and especially stop motion people and I think they a lot of them work the same way. Mm-hmm. Where like I am not a morning person and none of them that I know are morning people. <laughs> they all like really get into their groove at like eight, nine PM mm-hmm. and then they can just like go, like keep working and get like totally focused until it gets really late. Until like you whenever you finish up your shot basically. I feel like every time I I have any kind of long shot or go in to animate anything, I'm always there until like four in the morning. Uh, but I, but I, and I've also tried to figure out why that is, but um, I think a big part of it is just like things are very quiet at, like in the evening, like after everyone goes to sleep basically. It's like the normal working world goes to sleep and then that's when the animators come out of the cave and we have our like peace and quiet and no one's like calling us or bothering us and yeah. like I don't know, it's kind of like, it's kind of nice. I always found that when, because I'm also a stop motion animator, I found that daytime I always wanted to do anything else. So, like, (laughs) going and seeing people or having coffee or being outside in daylight. So, you know, at night it's already dark, so I might as well be in the dark Mm -hmm. room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, otherwise you're just missing out on all the daylight all the time. Yeah. That gets really depressing. Because <laughs> you have to be in a dark room. Yeah. In order there's, to do it. There's no yeah. way around it. I've tried. I've tried finding ways around it, but there's no way. <laughs> we just have to be night owls. That's the only way it works. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. I've also noticed that, or I've read that you come from quite a musical family. Music is obviously quite an important factor in all your films. Could you tell me a little bit how music inspires you and what your background is in music? I feel like in... Well, my mom's... I should, I should start here. My mom is a music teacher. Uh, she's both a music teacher at a middle school and also, like, an incredible pianist. So, like, I learned... She taught me piano from the time I was, like, two uh, or maybe 18 months old. Um, so I had started then with music, and music was always, like, a really important part of our family. My sisters are all musicians. My dad is, uh, he, like, took guitar for a while, and so he plays music as well. Um, so we've always kind of been, like, a bit of a musical family. And I was, and also in school, I was always just as involved in music as I was in art. And in fact, in high school, uh, I was way more of, like, a band nerd than than like an art nerd I mean I had my art classes and I took a bunch but like my life was banned like my life was all the music kids um I was in every group I was in like the jazz band the marching band the concert bands like the percussion ensembles like I was in everything (laughs) but I think having that background was really important for me and definitely like shaped my perspective in terms of music and filmmaking and everything now and that's also one of the reasons I went into animation is because I loved that I could do all of those different parts of the process that like I could have an art form where I'm able to sculpt and I'm able to consider sound and music and work in this sort of time-based format I always found that really fun and stimulating and kind of a way to like stimulate all those little parts of myself that that I have you know the most fun exploring 
So yeah, after high school, which was more of a music thing, I sort of flip-flopped and then went to art school and then got to focus on art. So I feel like my life's been kind of like this up and down of art and music that culminate in my in my films ultimately. Another factor that comes in a lot, especially looking at the making of Move Mountain, which we'll discuss in a minute, but um, is, <laughs> is um, obviously dance. Also with your film, your short test film that also gets a lot of views online in booty clap yeah yeah yeah. i have to admit i i teach and i put on for students all the time just because it just makes me really happy (laughs) um it's one of those it's in my category of short films that just make me insanely happy so i put it on every so often um (laughs) was um that short test and your like obvious love of dance um a catalyst for this new movie I think I've always, like, played with with dance or, like, tried to play with dance, sort of, like, yeah, leading up to this movie. So, yeah, maybe they were sort of, like, small tests in a way, even if, like, I wasn't always thinking about this movie as, like, the end result. Um, but, like, the booty clap thing, for example, it was just a class assignment. I think I was taking a class, um, oh, yeah, it was this class where you sort of you build a puppet but then it's a class on stop-motion direction. So you build this puppet in the first part of the class, and the second part, you kind of just, like, animate a bunch of different scenes that are prompted by the instructor. Uh, so you get a chance to sort of, like, practice acting with this one puppet. So that was the puppet I made, uh, and I purposely wanted to make one that has, like, boob joints and butt joints because I knew I, like, wanted to get this, like, bounciness from her. Um, so I, like... You know, and I considered that when I built her, that I knew I wanted her to do these actions. And what you have to do when you build any summer is you probably get to think, like, what's the puppet going to do? And then you have to build it accordingly. So I was like, I know she's going to shake her butt, so I built it accordingly. Um, and then the test was, like, probably the most fun I've ever had animating. Like, usually I kind of hate animating most of the time, to be honest, because um, it's so, like, it gets so tedious. Like, it's fun to watch it when you're done, but usually I'm like, oh... This sucks, and it's like my fifth straight hour. Um, but I actually had so much fun animating Booty Clap because uh, I was just like loving it. I was loving every frame of it, and I just I didn't even like plan it out. Like I just went like from the beginning. I just started out. And I was like, I'm just gonna hit these weird poses and just like go for it. And I just sort of let her go where she took me uh, through the dance. And then ended up with a test, which is, like, 20 seconds. But I'm really happy that, like, it's resonating with people as much as it resonates with me. I mean, I really love it, so I'm so happy that other people are into it. Uh, Yeah, just big fan of that kind of dance style. Um, And, and yeah, and, and like, just me personally, too. Like, like, I dance a ton, and, like, one of my favorite things to do with my friends is, like, we just have little impromptu stupid dance parties, and we just, like, do the silliest moves we can think of. Uh, so I tried to, it's like one of the reasons I also try to incorporate that into Move Mountain, the latest film. Mm-hmm. So on Move Mountain, what other events or things inspired that film? Mainly, and I think I've like mentioned this once or twice in like, um, somewhere on the internet, but um, mainly uh, my whole experience with Lyme disease. Like I had this like, crazy chronic illness for I mean I had it for over a year but it was like a year solid where I was like very very ill in like around around 2009 I think and in 2008 2009 
Um, and yeah, Lyme disease is something that's super prevalent, especially on the East Coast of the U.S. And it's all over the world, but um, East Coast of the U.S. is kind of where it originated. And it's sort of an epidemic that doesn't really get addressed much or isn't like treated as such, considering so many people have it. But it's like a like I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. It's like a terrible disease that like takes that can take all these different forms of other diseases. Like it looks like so many other things that it's really difficult to diagnose sometimes. So luckily I got a diagnosis uh, and then just sort of tried to treat like tried to treat it for a year, uh, and it was a long road. But I feel like I made it out healthy and I'm fine now. Um, and I definitely knew uh, since that experience that I wanted to make a film that kind of addressed illness and, and chronic illness for that matter and sort of like the idea of taking your health into your own hands, um, you know, in order to come through something because that's often what you need to do when you face something that, um, that debilitating, which is what I needed to do. So that's sort of what Move Mountain is about um, in, in part. And then there's some other themes there at play, but most of the things that happen throughout the story, you know, which end up, I guess, seeming a little symbolic, are just sort of things that I found helpful throughout my experience with illness, like things that sort of give you that extra boost and that extra support that you need to, like, remember to keep going, keep trying, and, um, and not give up. So that was kind of, like, the main, the main things that I was, that it meant to me, at least. All right. I did not know that. Um, (laughs) What were the conditions or funding behind the film in order for you to be able to make the film? I I feel like I never spend a ton on my films because it's mainly... I mean, stop motion takes a lot of time, but that's kind of where the trade-off is. I don't think they're super costly in terms of materials. It's just, like, a lot of time. Uh, I mean, I spent a lot because I learned how to do the whole, like, silicone casting process for puppets, which I knew I wanted to learn and use mm-hmm. this film as a way to teach myself. So I spent about a year of that process, or of that, like, the filmmaking process, like, learning that whole thing, uh, learning all those techniques and the molding, and, like, that's... That was, like, a whole complicated uh, ordeal. Um, so that got a little expensive just because you have a bunch of materials, but that still couldn't have been more than, like, several hundred dollars I think um, for all those things and then you know building the sets all that stuff you know all that amounts to like maybe a maybe a grand or maybe two grand Uh, and then I have and most of the equipment you can just check out at CalArts so you just you know sort of use it for free Uh, and I also have a lot of equipment equipment that I've built up over the years that I've acquired so in terms of funding like I pretty much funded it myself but I should mention that my last year I did get a really big scholarship um, at CalArts that kind of like took care of my entire year of tuition, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. So that, I know that definitely played a part in, you know, allowing me to sort of like focus all my time on the film and use some of that money toward the film and not be so concerned with like doing freelance work at the same time I was in school because that always takes away from like school projects and stuff. So I think that was a definitely a contributing helpful factor uh but usually i just fund things myself just like save up and try to do it on the cheap Hmm. okay on that note and another factor i really liked was the use of like traditional effects so using what i assume was like ky jelly for like the sweat and the 
the oozing and like the flowers for the leaves and the tree pulleys uh, why did you choose to use more traditional ways of creating movement and effects than digital techniques in post-production um i always just as a rule try to do everything um like practical if I can like do mm-hmm. everything in camera because I just think it looks better that way I think if something is physically there especially if you're working with such a physical like a medium as physical and stop motion um, as much as you can put into the frame you know all like it just everything looks better for it I think um, like and I had to do a lot of green screen too in this film which I don't usually do I also shy away from that because it just feel like it's another thing that you have to then in post make look real when if you know what your background's going to be and you can't build it, you should just build it. Um, but for me, I just, like, didn't have the space to build things as deep as I needed to build them. And I also wanted to practice doing green screen as well, so I did some more of that. Uh, but, yeah, in terms of using the traditional techniques, I, I think I just had more fun doing it that way as well, In term, like, like as well as it's, in my opinion, looking better. Like, I wanted to play with, with all those processes of, like, casting and everything, so... The waterfalls are actually, um, they're actually not replacements, but they're, it's a flexible urethane thing oh, that nice. I cast and I put a wire through. Uh, so there were a few processes that I wanted to just like, to mess with to see if I could do it differently. Hmm. So it's sort of like, it's still kind of traditional, but I wanted to do like a twist on the traditional thing. So yeah, like that, I had never seen that done before, like anything that was clear, like cast um, in a clear material that was flexible. So I wanted to try to make that work, and that was like a huge challenge getting those to come out looking right. And uh, and yeah, even the water droplets you mentioned, they actually weren't KY because I, I know that's also the way it's traditionally done. Like Ardman does it that way, uh, and it was this other material that I found called like quake hold gel or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I shouldn't I shouldn't give away the secret. This is like my big secret I found on the film. <laughs> Uh, but it's like the stuff that you put under glasses, like so in earthquakes, things don't fall over. But it's clear, and it's it's like a really, really slowly moving liquid, basically. Mm-hmm. And it, it just has weird, has weird properties. It's like you can you can mold it into a shape, and then after you let it sit for like a minute, um, since it's a slowly moving liquid, it starts to like kind of jellify and look like super wet, like it's shiny again. I don't know. It's weird. So. For the water effects, it sort of naturally was dripping, but then I could also kind of coax it in the right direction. It was, like, a really strange material to work with, but um, it also sticks to silicone, and nothing sticks to silicone, so that was, like, a fun thing to play with. Um, yeah, I just, like, I mean, I use these weird things called aqua gems, too, for my water, which are, I found them at, like, the local craft store, and it's, like, these little... They're meant for, like, flower arrangements, yeah. and they're just, like, j- jelly ball-looking things. So I use that, and, like, for, I don't know, for my water. I always just have fun, like, experimenting with different materials, like, as, you know, as I said before. So, like, trying out all these little things and being like, I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm going to try it, <laughs> um, is, like, part of, I think, why I do my effects that way. Because I always want to just, like, try try some new thing, like, discover some new process that's totally weird. I agree. I, I like that in general so much. It's nice when everything's done in camera. Yeah. Um, the other thing that really appealed to the the animation nerd in me was the all the notable characters you had from lots of oh, other yeah. uh, like puppet makers, <laughs> so like Julia Potts and Mikey Please. Um, uh-huh. How did you approach them about doing the film or giving the characters? Um, everyone whose whose character I use in that scene. 
um, are are like pretty close friends, so it wasn't like that much of a stretch for for Julie and Mikey to lend me their things because um, I've I've met them a few times and you know we've been hanging out over the years and they're awesome. Um, I was just really happy that everybody was really enthusiastic and on board with lending me their their puppets for that scene. Um, so yeah, I just reached out to a few people, um, and some of them were also people that um, that I was actually going to school with at the time. Like some of them were CalArts people as well. So I sort of just invited um, close friends to contribute characters. Most of them, I think, were two D characters that I had to make into three D stop motion versions. Um, and I, I think the only exception was Mikey's puppets, which he mailed to me. He mailed me his Eagleman stag guy, Peter Eagleman, and he mailed me the guy from his TV on the radio video, which is also so cool because he works with uh, ball and socket armatures, and I always just do wire armatures because their ball and sockets are like really expensive in the U.S. for some reason. Um, so, you know, my puppets are just, like, crappy and falling apart, and his puppet was, like, pristine and beautiful. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to mess up his beautiful puppet. It's so nice. Um, it was, like, a beautiful work of art. I got to, I got to animate for a second. I was very lucky. Um, and, uh, but yeah, the other fun thing and tidbit about that was I had the friends that actually lived in L.A., who contributed characters, I invited them to come over and we had a puppet-making party. So they brought their puppet designs. Um, this is also just because it would be easier for them to help make armatures than me make all the armatures. <laughs> so people, but it was fun. We had a good time. So everyone came over and we all, like, made armatures for our puppets. Some people even got into, like, foam build-up stuff. Some people had enough time for that. Um, and then everyone just, like left them as they were, and I just finished them all up and pretty much finished all the detail on the puppets. Uh, but there were a few people that came back and, like, actually sat with me, like, for a few days, and we worked together, um, kind of getting their puppet, like, exactly how they wanted it to look. So it was fun to sort of have a little bit more of a collaborative process for that scene, especially. Mm. What are you currently working on? Right now... I'm working on a freelance thing that I'm not supposed to talk about too much, unfortunately. I hate that. Uh, but I think that will probably come out in April if that happens. I always say that because you never know when things are going to get canceled last minute. So if that happens, it'll be out in April, and I'll hopefully be able to release it then. So, yeah, unfortunately I can't give any details, but um, but there are some fun things in the horizon, hopefully. Oh, good. That's what we like to hear. Yeah. <laughs> That was Laura Beth Cowley talking to Kirsten Lepore. You can find out more about Kirsten's work at kirstenlepore.com. And uh, she also has a Tumblr, which is kirstenlepore.tumblr.com. And yes, Move Mountain now online. You can watch her other work on the Vimeo channel. And the website has lots of examples of previous work, previous short films, commercial projects. She's had some pretty high-profile commissions, which I think is another sign of respect within an industry when you're you're given high-profile clients and then you really do sort of step up to the plate. Mm-hmm. All these sort of corporate-type projects that she's worked on, you can instantly tell there's very much something of her and what she does. Yes. Great stuff. Get yourself over to Vimeo. Get yourself over to KirstenLapore.com. And uh, yes, sample her excellent work. (laughs) 
So this March the 17th in Bristol, we have another special screening event that we'd love to see you at. In association with Cinemi Films and Tobacco Factory Theatres, we're presenting Love, Lust and Libido. A look at animation's raunchier side, curated by squiggly writer Laura Beth Kelly and myself. It'll take place at the Tobacco Factory Brewery Theatre in Bristol at 8pm. Features a selection of suitably adult shorts dealing with themes of relationships, love and sexuality. So not one for the kiddies. Some of the international filmmakers included are Ruth Lingford, Signe Bauman, Grant Orchard, Michael Socher, Tor Furegard, and uh, many more. The bar will be open and there'll be a prize draw, so it's sure to be a fun night. For more information, check out TobaccoFactoryTheatres.com, CineMeFilms.com, and of course us at Squiggly.com. So to reiterate, it's March 17th at the Tobacco Factory Brewery Theatre in Bristol, 8pm. Hope to see you all at Love, Lust, and Libido. Oh yes. Next up, we have John DiMaggio, who was the voice of Bender from Futurama and many other characters. I think the big one he's in at the moment is Adventure Time. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's uh, Jake the Dog in, in Adventure Time. He's in loads and loads and loads of things, as well as providing voice work for TV series. Uh, there's also movies. There's also video games where he plays characters that are well-known, like, for example, the uh, Lego Marvel superheroes games. He plays, like, uh, Galactus and Colossus and... In this kind of Spider-Man series of games, he plays Rhino. He's he's a big voice. He's got a voice that's kind of booming and gravelly and noticeable. But uh, he's also a man with a great deal of respect and passion for the industry that he's in. And as such, he's put together a documentary celebrating this uh, called I Know That Voice, which is basically... Do you remember uh, way, way back uh, we discussed... Um, Dream on Silly Dreamer and um, Waking Sleeping Beauty and all yeah. those kind of animated documentaries. Well, uh, the Sweatbox. The Sweatbox, yeah, that was the other one. And it, it, it's kind of, it's it, it's akin to those. Yeah. It's very well put together. I mean, for anyone who, who's interested in becoming a voiceover artist, anyone who's interested on how voiceover artists work or uh, the history of it, um, the kind of legacy as well, uh, where it's going now, the, the future of it. It's the perfect documentary. Excellent. So it's it's out essentially to buy now? Yes. It's not. Yeah, okay. it's out on uh, on iTunes. And he mentions in, in the interview that they're putting together a DVD as well. So if you don't want to get it on iTunes, maybe wait for the uh, DVD, which is going to be released in America. But if you've got like an American DVD player, you know, or something like that, a similar arrangement, then... Uh, you know, it might be you worth. just type the numbers in and it plays everything. Most DVDs have that, don't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't want to encourage illegal behaviour, you know. <clears throat> Is that really illegal, though? I think that's kind of one of the things that they turn a blind eye to. Well. <laughs> I mean, why would it be a thing on a DVD player if it's, you know... how We've, we've, we've made DVD players hackable, but just don't do it on an honour system. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's entrapment, isn't it? <laughs> so who who does he get in the documentary? Like who are the who are the big names? Maurice uh, Lamarche, Tara Strong, Billy West features heavily in it as well. Voiceover artists, as well as kind of the people who cast voices. So it's a little bit more about finding the perfect performer, as well as just who's in it. You know, who's the silly voice? Who's the loud voice? Who's the deep voice? You kind of really get to appreciate it as a craft, as opposed to 
somebody walking into a room and doing silly voices. It's not that. It's acting, and it's you know put across very well in this documentary. As I, as I mentioned earlier, there's also a great look at the legacy, and you've got June Foray, who is kind of legendary. She's about she's about 91 years old or something, but she's been a voice in in everything. She's more famous for being uh, Rocky the Squirrel in Rocky and Bullwinkle, also Granny in any kind of Looney Tunes episode which I think is great because I think she started doing granny when she was in the 30s and now she's older than granny is <laughs> and she's still doing the same voice and <laughs> she's still sort of getting behind the microphone and performing and and doing that great voice it's interesting I'm, I'm looking at the the list here is uh Castella Nether in it uh no 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 um uh. Uh, Nancy Cartwright uh Hank Azaria in it uh also who isn't in it uh, is Frank Welker. Ah, yeah, he's a big one. Uh, and, yeah, and um, Tress McNeil, who plays Mom in uh, Futurama and... Well, she's pretty much every middle-aged to old woman in any show. Yeah, like, she's Seymour she... Skinner's mum. <laughs> she's, she's brilliant as Seymour Skinner's mum. But, you know, some yeah. people decide that they don't want to be in it, then... You know, I mean, it's not that that, that John didn't do the or, or John's team didn't go around and ask everyone. They asked everyone, and most people said yes. And it is great to see it all on on the on the um, documentary. But overall, a very good lineup. Oh yeah, I mean, it's a stellar lineup. You know, really, really quite thorough. Like like you say, Maurice Lamarche, Tom Kane, Tom Kenny, Rob Paulson, a couple of the Powerpuff Girls, yeah, Pamela Adlon, I love. She's uh, she's adorable. If you were to put the full cast list of everyone that these people that are in this documentary played, yeah. it would be one hell of a cast list. Well, I'm I'm looking at the, the IMDb and it's it's huge. It's uh, like it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, <clears throat> of course, mm-hmm. Jimaggio himself still very much a uh, a player in the animation voiceover world. Mm-hmm. People love that Adventure Time. Yeah, yeah, oh, man. that's uh. And you know what? I'm kind of warm into it a bit. It was one of those things where, like, I think I needed a bit of distance between the the insanity around it, mm-hmm. and now people have kind of calmed down a bit. I'm catching bits of it sort of on its own. And also, you'll always get comfort from, you know, familiar voices, and so, yeah, you know, yeah, it's the Bender guy. It's a shame that we're not going to see any more future armor, and he does go into that into the in the interview. But, you know, the, like, like you said about The Simpsons, or have said about The Simpsons... You know, they're still there on DVD. You can watch them whenever you want. Yep. You know, you can grab them whenever you want. And I think they had more than a, a, enough of a good run, Futurama. They got a second go-round, and I think that's more than most people. Well, they got a second, for. third, fourth, fifth go-round. No. <laughs> <laughs> so many have been cancelled again and again and again. But one of the things about um, about Futurama is that it's... It, well, for me, uh, it's kind of left a bit of a gap because... I thought it was one of the most uh, original, ingenious shows with a kind of a, a rich, full universe that I, I, I sort of regularly enjoyed. It, it's a shame to see it go, but there are shows now through the kind of, through like Adult Swim that are out there and they are kind of doing that job. I, have you you've seen Rick and Morty yeah? I've seen a sort of trailer for it. Yeah. I have a take on the overall, what, it, what it's about. <sighs> Well, you, you can't watch it with a trailer. You need to watch the full episodes, Ben. They are absolutely incredible. They kind of plug for me for me personally. They kind of plug in that kind of Futurama fix that I need. Right. <laughs> the, the kind of new episodes, but because it's a whole new kind of um, universe and system and stuff, 
it's it's wacky it's zany it's it's grounded in places and as we said earlier on animation it's not a, a style it's a form and you can do anything with it and this show doesn't really have any any boundaries mm-hmm. but it doesn't see the the kind of lack of boundaries as a challenge to kind of be too gross or you know, fill it full of swear words, or oh, I'm an adult animation. I'm going to do lots of naughty things. You know, it's not. It's, yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't use that as an opportunity. It's very clever. It's very well put together. Um, and yeah, I, I recommend that to, um, to to listeners. It's available on YouTube. I mean, full episodes are out on YouTube. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, definitely worth checking out. Yeah, Rick and Morty. Give that one a shot and tell us what you think about it. Well, how do you rate the the acting in it? Going back to voices and stuff, because I I gotta say from the trailer I was sort of underwhelmed by the voices in it, particularly the Dot Brown guy. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, the Dot Brown guy. The, I think the show came about from a uh, from an animation, like a joke animation, about the relationship between Doc and Marty uh, from Back to the Future. Yeah, and it's kind of evolved into Rick and Morty, which is kind of a genius alcoholic grandfather and his grandson. Yeah. Both voiced by the same guy, uh, one of the co-creators, and um, I don't, I don't know whether I, I can't see what's wrong with it. I mean, the thing is, like, you, if you're a good voice actor, you can sell playing an old man character, whereas this is very clearly a young guy putting on a bad imitation of an old man. It's that kind of like you know, I'm clearly in my thirties, but I'm talking like an old guy now. You know, it's like, right. like there's there's more to it than that. There's more. And I think that the the roster of this documentary film, the John DiMaggio film, yeah, that is mainly made up of people who really know their stuff and really kind of live and breathe it in a way. I'm sure it works well enough, and maybe the trailer just it was either like a sort of rough mix or it was not necessarily well put together. But I, that's the kind of thing that would sort of take me out of it a bit. I think sound and acting is a big part of you know, what makes a TV show or a film successful. Sure. Especially in a cartoon, if you miscast a voice in a cartoon. Mm-hmm. Like, um, oh, going back to, like, adapting from comics, one of the hardest ones to watch, and this makes me so glad that they never tried to do, like, a Calvin and Hobbes show, but uh, they tried to do a show based on Dilbert. Mm-hmm. And there's an article in that somewhere down the line, because they have the, the guy from, like, the Wonder Years as Dilbert, and I think Chris Elliott is Dogbert. It's just like, no, these... Yeah. The thing is, with a comic strip, you have a voice in your head. And it's so, like, it's so distinct. I don't think, actually, you hear a voice necessarily. My sister maintains that, like, she knows exactly what Hobbes would sound like to her. And that any cartoon would completely ruin that, because unless it was that exact voice that she has in her head that no one could telepathically know but her then it would it would be unwatchable for her. Mm-hmm. And I get what she's saying. I think that because they did a cartoon in Ninja Turtles so early on, they got away with it because that was how most people were introduced to Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Way more, I think, than the original comic. So I think the original cartoon way more set a precedent of what the voices should sound like. So, you know, Michelangelo will always have a kind of a stonery voice or a surfer dude voice would be probably a better approximation and Raphael will always be a little bit more sort of gruff around the edges because he's a moody mm-hmm. yeah anyway well you're talking about talking about your sister hearing Hobbes in her head and, and everyone having a different voice I mean it goes back to like that it is basically a translation mm-hmm. you know and things get lost in translation 
But I'd like to go back and just sort of defend Justin uh, Roiland, the guy who does the voice of, of he does the voice of both Rick and Morty, and the character of mm-hmm. of of, uh, of Rick, the old man, is kind of a granddad, but he's also like an alcoholic with an awful lot of energy <laughs> to him. So mm-hmm. when you watch an episode, um, I think you'll get a better impression as to what the show's really about. But saying that, you're bang on the money when it comes to this particular documentary that we're talking about. I know that voice and how these kind of voiceover artists, it's not a case of just being a celebrity voice. You've got to act. You've got to, you you know, you've got to make it believable. You're just as important as a voice. A voiceover artist is just as important as an animator. Mm. If you're having a character speak, it's just as important as the animator. That you're speaking positively about a show for an adult audience, when there are very few out there with a lot of positive things people can say about them, as a pretty strong endorsement because I can't really think of much else that's really doing it for me these days. I mean, Bob's Burgers has its moments. A lot of stuff with H. John Benjamin. I'll watch because I just like his voice. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm not into a whole bunch of stuff. I gave Archer a go and I don't know if it's really for me. Um, yeah, Archer's got a lot of fans. Oh, I saw a wonderful one on Viva. Have you seen Brickleberry? <sighs> <laughs> what the hell, man? Like that? Enough already with these tr- these not-quite-family-guy shows. This is stuff we were talking about, like, a year and a half ago, of shows that just wouldn't... And I guess this show had already was already doing the rounds then, but I didn't see it until the other week. Well, this is it, isn't it? I mean, it's a kind of... I don't know if it's fair to call it lazy, but, you know, lazy from a kind of production standpoint. I think when one of the characters is Stewie, but a bear... A bear, yeah. That's lazy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. I can't begin on this. I really can't begin because I won't finish. Well, the thing is, you know what the worst thing actually about the whole thing is? Mm. That we were watching this sort of fascinated, and I think we worked through a good, like, half of an episode. And every, per every 20 jokes, one of them actually did make me laugh. And that's infuriating because I wouldn't just be like, oh, this is just terrible. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, wait, that was actually kind of funny. Yeah, but every five jokes or every second plot line has already been done in oh, yeah. Family Guy or, or The Simpsons. And it's like... It doesn't it doesn't make up for the other 19 jokes that bombed. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, you want to just have like an unconditional hatred, but then it just has these moments of like, eh, damn. Yeah. I was listening to I was listening to an, a, another podcast. It's a history podcast. Um, stuff you missed in history class. And I was talking about was there a real Sweeney Todd? And they was talking about an era in kind of um, in the mid eighteen hundreds where Charles Dickens was very popular. He was a very popular writer, and there were people who would write basically knockoffs of his stories. So he wrote Oliver Twist, and they would write Oliver Twist without a T on the end. Right. And it would basically be essentially a similar story of hardship and things like that. And, it, and I, was, I was listening to it thinking, well, that's so cheeky. And then I was thinking, that's going on in animation now. Isn't that basically <laughs> the entire mission statement of Asylum Films? <laughs> not the uh, not the British studio, but that that company that does like Sharknado and, you know, Braver. Yeah. And Up Higher. <laughs> yeah. Race cars. <laughs> they just take a film, they change the title by one letter and make the cover look exactly the same as the, the proper film poster and it has nothing to do with the exactly. film. Exactly. And it's, it's going on. It's, it, it's still going on, this kind of... The, the idea that, you know, something amazing and popular comes along and it's just so easily ripped off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but the thing is, you can tell the difference 
between quality and easy gags, easy storylines, easy kind of stuff where people are ju- where writers are just hired and people aren't really saying anything with the work. Mm-hmm. You know, just like you can tell the difference between a good voiceover artist or a good animator. Yeah, you know, definitely. If somebody just has a character sat there blinking, you know, you're not going to well up, are you? Well, you never know. Which depends, depends yeah. how many times to blink, but you know. I think Walter White has some pretty pensive blinking moments over the course of that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still on series two. I still need to find out a little bit more about how that goes. A lot of goodness to get through. Yes. Yeah. It's getting a bit kind of hazy and stuff, but I'm really enjoying it. Really enjoying Breaking Bad. Yeah. Once, uh, once Gus Fring is properly in the mix. Yeah. Gus Fring and Mike, they're a good pairing. Right out. I'm going to leave this in just in case anyone else hasn't seen that show, because you really should have by this point. (laughs) Enough already with you. I don't want to watch it because everyone else is watching it. Tough. You have to. It's the law now. And watch The Sopranos while you're at it, kid. (laughs) I like to feel that as as a podcast, we're culturally enriching our listeners. Oh, hopefully. (laughs) Stop watching cartoons, you losers. (laughs) (laughs) Would you get real jobs? You sound like me dad. Your dad sounds like a smart fella. <laughs> I like the way he thinks. Anyway, let's uh, let's bring this all home now. Uh, John DiMaggio. Yes. I'm, I'm keen to hear uh, what he has to say about the state of things and, uh, and more about this documentary. So, John DiMaggio, everyone. Let's, uh, let's start at the beginning. I mean, were you always uh, wanting to be... in the ass? Well... <laughs> Yes, I always have been a pain in the ass. <laughs> I, uh, I've always been fascinated by, by cartoons. I, I mean, you know, as a kid growing up, you know, you, 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 you're watching cartoons on Sunday mornings, I mean, Saturday mornings and everything, and, and, uh, and, and now they're on all the time, which is great for us making cartoons because we have somewhere to put them. Um, but uh, yeah, I've always been kind of a mimic, too. You know, and I've always been interested in, in that kind of performing, and uh, and so I guess this whole this whole thing that I've fallen into has really been uh, been pretty pretty cool. It's been pretty. It's been it's been a trip, and I never really re- put two and two together that I that, that, that I'd end up doing this, but it just so happened to end up being like that. It's pretty amazing. Excellent. So, uh, when did you get your start? I mean, we we we've, we've sure have all been on YouTube and seen Johnny and the Red Guy, uh, Red things like that. The round guy, yeah. The, the yeah, round guy. Sorry. <laughs> that was a, no. Don't worry about it. It was a bad name. We never got on David Letterman uh, in the United States because we had a bad name. I'm not going to say that name. Red Johnny and the Round Guy. Not going to do it. So we never we never made it. But um, but uh, it, you know. I started by doing voiceover in New York when I was doing stand-up, and uh, I was doing a lot of like um, a lot of uh, radio ad- advertisements and television stuff and, and and things like of that nature. And then the act broke up, and I went and uh, I went and got a job, and I had to move out to Los Angeles for it. And so I continued to do voiceover out here. But the voiceover stuff that I did out here was predominantly animation. And so that changed everything. And, 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 and I started to go out for a lot more stuff. And it was, you know, and I used a lot of voices in my act. 
you know, so so it was kind of a natural progression. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I mean, I don't know. I guess I guess it just happened, and I, you know, I started to book a couple of gigs here and there, and then uh, and then you know, bam, Futurama, you know, nineteen ninety nine, and that took off, and it's been a, it's been it's been so much fun ever since. Like it's just been great. Um, you know, and being able to work and being able to make a living and being able to being able to perform and, and, and do what I, I get to do is just such a blessing. And it's just I'm so fortunate and I never I never I, I hope I never take it for granted. You know, it's just one of those things. I, I just feel really fortunate that I'm able to do this, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I did the movie, too. You know, I know that voice because, you know, it was just, it's just a valentine to, to my peeps. You know, it's too, they're, they're a wonderful group of, uh, of people to work with on a, on a daily basis. And, and anybody in my position that had the opportunity to do something like I did, I think would do it as well. I think it's kind of a no-brainer, you know. So, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's how I got started and then... And, and, and I hope to keep going. It's one of those jobs that, you know, I, I will just want to do it till the end. I'd like to die in front of a microphone. <laughs> That'd be pretty good, you know. That's some ambition. It, yeah. <laughs> it's like a rock star ambition. That's it. That's it, you know. It, it, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's doing what you love. I mean, if I love digging ditches, I'd hope I'd die with a shovel in my hand. You know what I mean? Like, it's the same thing. It's, it's, you know, that's, that's it. It's, it's just been good to me. And I, I, and I hope this movie is, is good to it, you know. It is, as you called it, a, a Valentine. I've actually got it in my notes here as a, as a love letter to the fine art of voiceover acting. It's, uh, it covers everything. It's from start to finish if you want to, if you're interested in voice acting, maybe if you want to become a voiceover actor. Um, and it's, everyone's there. I mean, did these guys become your friends or were they already your heroes when you kind of uh, started off uh, back in, in the 90s? It, it, you know, it's funny because, like, I really didn't know that they were my heroes until I started working with them. And I started, like, I really, it just something, it was just something I really kind of fell into. And and it just, you know, I started working with these people and I would, I would meet them and I'd go, holy shit, this guy's a legend. Like, I didn't even realize, like, who, you know and you're sitting next to him working and it's just you know you're just everything is normal it's just and and you're blown away by the fact that this guy's got this guy sitting next to me has like 25 years of show business credits to his name and like and nobody knows who the hell they are you know what i mean like it's just it's just funny like i got to do a scooby-doo with uh casey Kasem, who you guys we had he was a radio disc jockey for many many years he did you know, he was, you know, I'm Casey Kasem. This is American Top 40. Like, he did his whole thing. And and so I'm sitting in this gig, and I'm, you know, we're doing Scooby-Doo. And, and Fred, the original Freddy's there. Like, you know, he, he um, God, I, his name. Is that Frank was, Welker? Yeah, Frank Welker, who wasn't able to do the movie. And everybody's like, how can you have a voiceover movie without Frank Welker? 
Well, I think everybody can have a voiceover movie without Frank Welker because he's not doing anybody's voiceover movie. <laughs> he's that humble that he's like, I don't need to deal with this. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, it's not my thing. I'm not. I'm not down. And you know, him and Tress McNeil, they they were like, thanks, but no thanks. It's just like, what? But whatever. I'm sitting across from him. I got. I had Casey Kasem in the room, and all I wanted was a bowl of cereal, you know, like a bowl of Cocoa Puffs or something like that. So I just <laughs> sit down and just eat cereal and listen to my, you know, listen to these guys from my childhood. And that's the thing, you know, you can, you know, ageism is taken out of the picture when you, when you, when you're a voiceover actor. You know, as long as you sound the same, doesn't matter how old you are. You know, it's just like if if you keep if you if you've kept your instrument in good shape you can you can last for a while you know and so it's just exciting that's just you know i don't know it's kind of cool well you one one of the uh, one of the people that's testament to that is uh, june foray who's in the documentary as well who is who, i mean talk about talk about old and still kicking it like she is she's on top of it she's still doing it she's still she gets in the room and she's ready to go you know it's funny all those old performers man they all look kind of, they all look kind of old, and they look kind of like, oh man, what's gonna happen? Are they gonna make it? As soon as you put a microphone in front of their face, bam, they are ready to go, ready to be there. They know how to conserve their energy. They know how to just be like, all right, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna make it. Okay, here, there's the microphone. Bam, and they just blow it up, and then and you know, it's like Don Rickles. Don Rickles is still doing it. Like, he's old as dirt backstage. He gets out in front of the, I'm a nice guy. It's just, you know, it's it's amazing. Like, uh, June Foray is really something special. We were so honored to have her in the film. And, um, you know, it's just a, it's just a, it's just a great, it's just a great tribute to the people in this business. I, I'm, I'm just so happy the way it worked out. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just really, I'm really proud of the work we did, and 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 I'm proud of and proud of the film, and I hope everybody in the UK is excited about it as well. Um, hopefully, I'll be able to come soon. You know, come over maybe this maybe sometime this year, just to you know do some kind of promo or you know maybe sit down at a convention or I don't know something. Going to Australia, I know that's completely on the other side of the world, and yes, you know your penal colony, but still. <laughs> You know, I'm going to, you know, it's like I'm, I'm able to go and, and, and kind of show it. And and, uh, and it's just exciting. And, and we've had a lot of um, a lot of folks from the UK on our website, you know, asking, when is it coming out? We want a hard copy. Good thing is, is that it is out on iTunes. The other good thing is, is that we just finished our DVD with all the all the fixings, man. All the uh, in fact, I have a. I have a copy of it right here. Ah. This, this is the copy of the film with all of the uh, all of the special features. So we're, uh, we're we're getting all the packaging together right now, and it's it's coming together wonderfully. And you'll be able to order that from the website. So Excellent. That should be in April. Will that be? That'll be available in the UK. You see, fingers it, crossed. There. It, it, listen, it, it, it's. The one thing, it's region one, so it will be able to play in the UK. You might have to order it from the United States. Yes, it should be available. It should be available. It should be available. <laughs> it should be available. If it's not available, I'm, I'm tossing some heads. <laughs> Getting ready. But yeah, it should be, it should be, it should be by, uh, 
uh, April, which is exciting, you know. So and mm-hmm. and this thing, it got to number three in the in in the U.S. on um, on the uh, on uh, on number on the documentaries. It was number three. So we'll see what happens. I mean, like I don't know what our numbers were worldwide, but I know we did well. Um, so we'll see. I mean, it's just it, and I, I, this is all new to me. I don't know what I'm doing. Like this, you know this. I mean, I know what I'm doing, but I don't know what I'm doing. You know, it's the first time. It's just like, okay, I made that mistake. Let's do this. Come on, let's you know, you know, I know how to make a mistake. Yeah. That's one thing I know how to do as an actor. I, 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 you know, you learn how to make a mistake and you learn how to get up and fix it. You know, so that's uh, that's what this whole producing thing has been has been about. And it's, it, I'm just, I'm just grateful that uh, that people like the movie. Excellent. So. Well, there's, there's plenty of, as I was saying, there's plenty of uh, animation festivals, uh, conventions uh, throughout the UK, and there's you know loads of fans of uh, of your work. As I said, mentioned earlier on that you've got the game fans from Gears of War and other games. You voice an awful lot of um, of like Marvel uh, characters, DC. You do like Bizarro and and, and Rhino and, and and all these kind of legendary characters from from the comics, but on on the game scene as well as your own character, Marcus Phoenix, uh, or character that you've made your own, rather, Marcus Phoenix. Um, could you could you sort of see all this kind of happening when you started back in in, in like the nineties and and and, and future yeah. armor? Oh. I, I I I didn't really know what was going to happen, and you know the thing that changed is the gaming. Gaming changed, and as a matter of fact, it's just like I just found out today that a new company bought. Well, well, like um, Microsoft rebought Gears of War from Epic, and they're bringing in another company to work on the game. Epic is letting them use the Unreal, um, the the, uh, the engine, you know, the graphics the, engine. Yeah, 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 the, yeah. Th- that they're they're letting them use that, but apparently it's going to be more Gear stories. So that's kind of exciting. Um, you know, I, hopefully they hopefully they have. Uh, they have plenty of Marcus in there. Hopefully, they won't kill him off like they did Dom. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but you know, it's it's one of those things. It's like okay, cool. You know, I, I never saw I never saw the world of gaming coming at me like it did, um, and it's been wonderful because it's been it's been um, it's been lucrative for me. It's been good. It's been a you know, I mean, there's a lot of other guys that do a lot more gaming, but it's it's you know, gaming like voices for games. But I'm I've been lucky. I've been I get good gigs, and and I'm telling you, the you know, the Gears of War trilogy, uh, the franchise is is just it's just fantastic. And 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 being able to play all the all the super villains and stuff like that, you know, all these bad guys has been just just a blast. Um, you know, I didn't. I didn't foresee it coming simply because I didn't see the the gaming going the way it did. It just it just changed everything. Like you know, for for a lot of people, a lot of the a lot of the voiceover, a lot of the voiceover folks. I mean, they they make so much of their money, you know, through that, and and it's great. I mean, it's just it's a it's a great thing to be able to have and so I don't know I'm just I'm just I'm just glad that I get to work you know I'm just glad that I get to do what we what we do it's just yeah it's just just fun I mean just a fortunate fortunate guy with the uh, with with Marcus's 
voice, which is extraordinary. It's, I mean, you've got a naturally deep voice, but his voice like makes the windows rattle. Did you ever wish, because of all the repetition in computer games and things like that, that you maybe did a little bit softer or anything, anything like you know, that? It's funny. There, there are moments where you can kind of tone him down, but there's so many moments where he's in the middle of a battle and you're just like screaming and yelling and and going crazy that it's just you know, I I I I say in the movie like you know I gotta you gotta do it at the end of the week because you need your <laughs> weekend to re- to recover. It's um. You know, oh, it's, it's Monday. Just, There's nothing. That... <laughs> yeah, it's 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 hard. It's it's a hard. You know, it's just you know, it's just not speaking. It's you know, people think you're just talking into a mic. There's a whole there's a whole lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wish. Yeah, I wish they could. See, they could be like, can we reuse that, please, so I don't ever have to scream that loud again. <laughs> you know, like you know, some of the death, some of the death rattles and stuff like that. But. Um, but it's 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 fun. I I don't care. I'll listen. I'll I'll blow it out. I'll blow my I'll blow my voice out if I have to. I don't care. That's that's par for the course. You know, you try not to, but mm-hmm. you know sometimes you do. You know, it's the it's what happens. So out of your own um, repertoire, uh, do you have any particular favorite characters? It must be a question you get asked a lot. I do, and it's it's funny because like. You know, it's hard to pick a favorite because, you know, it depends on the mood you're in. <laughs> you know, if I'm in a lazy mood, then I, I think that doing Jake the dog is probably, you know, my favorite uh, because it's closest, you know, it's close. It's kind of closest to my to my normal kind of speaking voice, you know, with a little with a little cute dog put on it. You know, like, you know, it's just like, I'm a cute dog. Hey, how you doing? You know, I don't walk down the street doing that. Um <laughs> But I mean, I, 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 it's hard to pick a favorite. But I mean, Bender is just such a gimme. It's just so. I mean, he opened the doors for for me. You know, Bender opened the doors for what I do, and and it's been pretty awesome. You know, it's uh, it's I I love the robot dearly. I love the people on the show dearly. We just we were up in San Francisco for San Francisco Sketch Fest and. Uh, big big comedy festival here in the states uh they've, they've been going strong now for about i think 13 13 years now and uh and we were just up there for a big panel and we had a we had a theater you know 650 people's packed you know and we showed a couple of uh we showed some stuff and we read some scenes and, and uh, but it's yeah it's over you know that's that's a bummer but um but yeah i think bender is I think Bender is great, and I think he even sings songs about that too. So, <laughs> <laughs> I have heard them. <laughs> I uh, another one of your roles that I really like. Well, it's a com- I can compare two characters. You do. Um, they're both superhero characters. They're both um, animation, obviously, but they're both complete. One's a hero, one's a villain, but they're both completely different kind of nuances the sort of bombastic maniac that Aquaman is in The Brave and the Bold, comparing that to a kind of different kind of funny, like a sick funny for your uh, version of the Joker uh, in Under the Red Hood, which obviously, um, as soon as I heard like John DiMaggio was doing the Joker, I was like, interesting choice, very interesting choice. 
That was uh, that was a lot of fun to do. I did that with Andrea Romano, and she's just a wonderful, wonderful director. Um, she's in the film as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's 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 brilliant. She she actually worked on both the film and the television show. And uh, I came in. I it was up to me. It was me and Diedrich Bader for the role of Batman, and they went with Diedrich. And it was like, oh damn, oh well. They were like, well, you know, we still want you involved in the show. We want you to be Aquaman. And I was like, Aquaman, awesome! I get to make Aquaman cool. And that's basically what I was trying to do. It was like, he was so bombastic and so just, you know, just a showman. You know what I mean? Like, it was just so much fun. I loved doing that. I loved, I really missed doing Batman Brave and the Bull. That was a really fun show to do. Um, great, great writers. I mean, I mean the whole the whole universe of it is just just brilliant. It, it, you know, just I, I yeah. This uh, 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 Michael Tucker, Michael, no James, James Tucker. Sorry, who uh, wrote, wrote a lot of yeah, Michael Jelinek and James Tucker. Um, genius, both of them really smart and just really amazing and the musical numbers were great in the show like it was just there were so many cool things to check out um yeah just so much fun but but the but the joker was getting the opportunity to play the joker was a lot of fun and it was you know i'll I'll forever be indebted to andrea for letting me do that they had somebody else cast and the guy couldn't get it done he would he wasn't a voice actor he was a very good character actor and um i'm not gonna say who he is I won't ask. But uh, he's a really amazing character actor. And he would rehearse it. And you would have it perfect. And then they would be like, okay, let's record it. And he could, he could never get it. He couldn't get it. So they were like, we don't have the time for this. We need to get this done. And, they, and she was like, I got it. Hey, John, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, listen, can you come in? I got this gig for you. Okay, I come. I come in. It's the Joker. I'm like, ah, bah, bah, bah. so that was kind of cool. That worked out well. Excellent. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Do you like working on things with a kind of, with like a rich universe? Obviously, um, at Adventure Time, the universe there could kind of go on forever. Futurama, uh, obviously, a huge uh, universe there. The Brave and the Bold's got all that history to it. Um, and then obviously through the games and, 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 and everything else. Uh, yeah, it, the very rich universes. As a voiceover actor, when you get the script and when you get, is there a kind of a little, is there a fanboy element to it that you sat and go, oh, this is great, I, there's so much to this? Or Well, yeah, I, think as an, I think as an actor, you want to have as much, as much depth as possible um, in your back pocket to work with so that, you know, you can help create you're part of that world, uh, you know, that much better. Um, the, the more, the more you have, the more, you know, the, the, the better off your performance will be. Um, and when, when a world is that, is that deep, um, it's just, there's just, there's just nothing stopping you. Um, you know, and, and, and you get to grow. That's the thing. You get. You're not just set in this one performance. You're. You're. You get to grow and expand, and your character gets to gets to change and and 
and develop that's that's what's that's the best part about that I think that that that's the most and, and the most important it helps the story it helps the performance it helps it helps paint the picture mm-hmm. you know they sort of go hand in hand as well I mean of course when when you step up to the mic and and, and perform as a character the the showrunners the show writers would they be kind of oh that's a nice twist you know oh uh, yeah no, that all goes. Yeah, that all goes hand in hand. There's always, there's always something, there's always something that I can bring when, when somebody else has provided me with this world to live in. You know, it's um, yeah. The, the deeper, the deeper it gets, the the better it gets. The 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 more, the more I'm able to say no. That character wouldn't say that. You know, let's do it this way, and then the person that wrote it goes, "Oh yeah, you are really in tune with this. You do know. You've taken it from me and made it your own, and now you really have a better understanding. You, you have as much of an understanding as the characters I do, if not more. Um, and that's a good thing. That's not like you know, I know this better than you do. It's not about that. It's about let's try this. Let's try this and see if this sticks to the wall." The, the more you're you're in it, the more the more you have to lose, and that's what that's that tightrope. That's that thing that you walk that that makes it so thrilling and invig- and invigorating the work that we do. Do you work closely with the like the likes of uh, uh, Matt Groening and David X Cohen and, and Pendleton Ward? Um, um, well, when when we were doing Futurama, uh, David X Cohen was there all the time. Um, in the beginning of the season, Matt would show up and be like, "Hey, how's it going? Okay, great job. Let's go. All right, congratulations. Wee!" And then it'd be done. And he'd be like, "Okay." Um, but Matt, but David was there all the time, voice directing. Pendleton is there um, sometimes. Uh, Ken Osborne is the uh, showrunner, and he's the guy who also directs in the booth, and he also helps. Uh, he's like a supervisor producer. He also like writes stuff on. It. He's an all around great guy, and he gets he he conducts the uh, the the what call it. He he conducts the um, the sessions, and so it's 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 better sometimes when because Penn is so overwhelmed by the world, you know, and it's just, it's easier if he has an ambassador to you know to tell people what's going on. Plus, he's got another show at Cartoon Network that he's working on right now, so he's he's busy as hell. So, but you know, it's it's always good to have those guys in the room. And but I mean, Matt was always at the table read. He was always at a table read, and he would and he would let us do his. See, that's the thing. He was there. He would put his two cents in and go, "Okay, my guy's got it," and leave it alone. You know, and that that's a good thing. We don't do a table read for. Uh, Adventure time. So I don't know. Maybe maybe we should. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'd, I'd uh, share Matt Groening's uh, enthusiasm to be there first time when when episodes are being read out, especially Futurama. Such a shame to hear that it's not coming back. I mean, uh, Maurice Lamarche set off a petition as well. Um, another petition. And yeah. uh, it's it's such a terrible shame because it was such a, a like, we, like we spoke earlier on such a rich world, uh, such a creative universe, and it's something that could have just continued. Um, but now, listen, 
Maurice is a Maurice is a wambulance. <laughs> that guy, wham, <laughs> wambulance. Um, you know, anything can happen with this show. The last episode, I don't know if anybody's seen it. Spoiler alert. Um, you know, it's open ended. Um, I mean, it's definitely had an ending, but it's still wide open. We have a crossover episode with The Simpsons mm-hmm. coming up in May. I don't know if it airs here in May. I don't know when that means it airs in the UK. 2019. Son of a bitch. <laughs> no, it'll be um, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it airs at end of times. Um, <laughs> it's... it's uh, <laughs> But it's just like anything can happen. Matt can be like, let's do another four DVDs. Let's do something. The guy's got more money than God. It's like, okay, fine, you know. And I'm not saying that because I want some. I'm just saying that he can pull it off. If anybody can do it, Matt can. Matt's said to Billy and I, like, you know, we were like, oh, we're really sorry. You know, the show is ending. He's just like, it's all right. It's okay. It's all right. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean we're going to do something? Or what are we going to do? Are we doing a new show with you? What are we doing, Matt? And he hasn't said anything. So we'll see what happens. I mean, who knows? You know, I mean, plus the other thing, it's like, we did like 140-something episodes. Oh, there's enough. There's enough to go back on. (laughs) We had a great run. We extended seven seasons over 13 years. It's like, okay, Maurice, you're the voice of Lexus. Move on. Let's go. All right? For crying out loud. Like, it's okay. We got gigs. Everybody's working. You know, give me a break, you know? Um, and it's nice that people want to see it back. Hell, I want to see it back on. I love working on a show, but, you know, all good things must come to an end, and that's just the bottom line. It's just like, you know, yeah, you give. You get a petition together to get the show back on the air, but why not get a petition together to feed the homeless, for Christ's sake? Screw the show, you know what I mean? It's like, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot better things to petition about than a a freaking cartoon show. Not that I don't want people to petition about a cartoon show, but it's just, you know, come on. Maybe Everybody's all right. We can tell the stories... Well, who knows? I, I'd love to tell the stories more, but right. we'll see what happens. So sign a petition for Futurama and then sign a petition for something that matters. Yes. <laughs> yes, do both. Do both. That's what we should do. Do both of them. Excellent. In the documentary, you, you get the, 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 the cast uh, to read Shakespeare. I mean, I'm wondering, is there a role uh, that for a voiceover actor that is like the equivalent of Shakespeare or the equivalent of... Oh, I really want to get into that part. This is a, you know, this is my uh, King Lear. Um, wow, that's a good question. It's about time I asked one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know about that because let's put it this way, like, Playing the role of Bender, I didn't know it was going to be as big a deal. I mean, I kind of had a feeling about it just simply because of the pedigree, but I didn't really realize that it's that kind of a role until after the fact. You know what I mean? Like, you don't realize it's like a King Lear-esque role until after you're done with it, and then you're sitting around going, 
okay, what else am I going to do? Oh my God, I just, just, I just did that. Wait a minute, what did I, you know, like, um, listen, playing, playing the villain on Scooby-Doo that gets to say, and I would have gotten away with it had it not been for you meddling kids. I got to do that once. That was really cool. The other times I did the show, I, I was, uh, I only, um, I was, I was the guy they thought was the bad guy, but it turned out wasn't really the bad guy. It was just a <laughs> <laughs> But, but, um, no, I, I, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe some of the legendary characters, maybe playing like, like, like a Bugs Bunny or, you know, being, being, you know, being Daffy Duck or being, you know, being some of the legendary Warner Brothers characters. I think those in, you know, if you look at you know if you look at your classic Shakespearean characters and you look at these classic cartoon characters, I think that maybe that's the maybe that's the parallel. Um, I don't think I've ever really wanted to play any of the Mel Blanc stuff because I never really did any of the Mel Blanc stuff. So I don't know. I had one of the animators though from Bongo Comics look at me at the last table read and he, actually he signed he signed my script. And he put underneath it, do Shakespeare. <laughs> so I guess I got to go do some Shakespeare now. I got to find the right role. I, you know, I, who was I? Who was, who just passed away? The actor that played Lawrence of Arabia. Peter O'Toole. He, yeah, Peter O'Toole. He memorized all the sonnets. And he carried the sonnets with him all the time. And... What was the point in memorizing it then? Yeah, well, because he can. I mean, when you get old, man, you, you know, <laughs> I mean, you put them, you put them down like Peter O'Toole did. I mean, you're gonna have some memory loss. Um, so, <laughs> um, but uh, but that's something I'd actually like to do. I have yet to do that, but I need a book of the sonnets. So, and because you know, iambic pentameter, man, it's just so Shakespeare's something I never wanted to wanted to do I, I I much rather watched it than read it because I would understand it more when I would watch it and hear it hear somebody else saying it to me it's kind of like seeing the movie as opposed to reading the book but I'll watch the play you know what I mean like I'll I'll, I'll, I'll go to the theater and see Shit, man I've seen Coriolanus uh, um <laughs> You know, but you know that's an interesting question. I yeah, I I would yeah. I think it's I think there's yeah the Warner Brothers characters would be that, or the or the the big time um, superheroes that exist. You know DC, Marvel, that stuff. But they were never really voiced by anybody. That's like so. I think it's the Bugs Bunny. That's a really good question. You really tripped me up on that one. Damn it. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Um, so if we talk about to a, a typical recording session for you uh, do you work with other voiceover actors or is it usually yeah. alone or? Uh, either or um, it's you know sometimes we record with an ensemble um, sometimes your schedule doesn't allow it and you have to just come in and just do it um, and do it alone but when you've recorded in an ensemble um, when you recorded in an ensemble it's easier to know what your fellow actors are going to do 
with with what their performances are. So, you know, it's good to record in both. I don't mind doing either. I don't mind recording with an ensemble. I think it's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of there's a lot of magic that happens there. You know, that stuff that I was talking about before about things sticking on the wall. You know, like well, let's try this. Like sometimes. Sometimes improv can happen, and, and that's really amazing, and, and you can get a really great laugh, and it's funny. But um, but so, you know, sometimes you know you got to be in the studio for a half hour, be in and out. <laughs> it's it's all up to you know, it's it's all up to the to the scheduling, to the scheduling gods. But yeah, I I don't mind either. Um, re- recording with an ensemble helps really to pull a lot of magic out of the cast. <laughs> so. But, but both happen. Yeah. As a um, as a sort of uh, more kind of to the animation side of things myself, I can look at an animation and I can tell the difference between um, something which is quote unquote good and something which is lazy or or you know half decent or anything. I mean, is there equivalent for voice voiceover actors or do you have to be the best to get to um, any kind of level or exposure or you know do you have to have a um, you know, it's not something. Is it? Some, it's not something anyone can just walk in off the street and just do a silly voice. It's acting. Yeah. No. It, it, there's a. You you really have to be an actor to 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 to, to do this job. <laughs> um, hands down. Um, you you have to have a sense of play, of course, but it's it's acting. It's acting, and you're going through you're you're going through everything that you're doing. Um, it's not a lot of people can do it. There's a there's a theatricality about it, and a, and a very, it's very personal. It's very personal when you perform when you when you're performing as a voice actor in front of a microphone. It's like it's like acting with your hands and your feet tied. You know, like your hands be t- tied behind your back and your feet tied at the, you know, down there, and you're just, you just you 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 have to make everything happen here. You know, that one look, like you know, if somebody looks at a camera and gives you a look, you have to make that with your voice. So it's just like there's, I don't know, it's it's funny. You can't, you, yeah, nobody, you can't walk in off the street. Um, and just do it. And if you and if you did walk in off the street and just do it, you you have been doing it in the mirror for twenty years. You know what I mean? Like you have been dreaming of it. Uh, you have been wanting to do it, mm-hmm. and, um, and you've been practicing at it by yourself. You know? Um, yeah. That's. I mean, that that's the only way. That's the only way you could come in off the street if you were a closet like a closet freak about voiceover acting and and pretended and played and did all that that's the only way you could come in on the street so yeah it's not that easy it's not as easy no. as uh, as the professionals make it look you know that's why we're professionals <laughs> <laughs> excellent well, you see plenty more professionals in uh, in I, I know that voice. Um, I mean, now that you've flexed the the producing muscle, uh, besides Shakespeare, what's what else would you like to flex? Would you like to do some more writing um, or uh, set up a, a project yourself? Or 
You know, right now, uh, with the producer, uh, with the producer I worked with on I Know That Voice, he and I are trying to get a, a children's show off the ground, um, a cartoon. Um, but we're going to do it, um, we're going to do it, we're going to circumvent some some Hollywood people in, in, in this town and, and see what we can do in order to get it going a different way. Because there's so many different ways to get your content out there. And, and we have an idea that would really work. Um, and, it, and it's a kid's cartoon and it's about, uh, it's about being eco-friendly and it can, it can entertain and educate at the same time. So that's exciting. Um, other than that, just working on other stuff. Uh, you know, as far as producing another movie is concerned, you can forget about that. I don't ever want, I don't, I'm good. I'm tapped out. I mean, um, unless it's a, unless it's something I shoot, you know, it's just, I mean, I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to ever do that again. I mean, it was fun and it was good and I'm glad I did it, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really hard to make a movie. It's really hard. And, uh, I'm glad it's over. It's still not over too. I mean, we're still plugging it. We're still doing stuff with it we're still I mean but you know I don't know it's just uh, I'd like to get some more on camera work so we're working on that working on that this year with my agent see what we can do see if I can nail some auditions for crying out loud um but that's about it you know just Southern California <laughs> have you do have you done much on screen with the sun man hey alright cool <laughs> Have you done much um, on-screen work? I mean, I um, well, I just uh, last year I did a. Let's see, last year I did a Modern Family. I did a show called The Newsroom. It's on HBO here uh, in the states. Um, I don't know if you guys have it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, did I do a couple other things? Yeah, it's not that much, but it's good. It's, the stuff that I'm getting is good, but it's just it's been few and far between. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, you know. Um, uh, do, do the actors know you? Huh? Do the actors know you? When do the, the actually? I had an audition for a film like about about a month and a half ago, and someone came up to me and said, "Hey, man, did I see you on Modern Family?" I was like, "Yeah." He was like, "Hey, you were good, all right." And he went in. There was audition. And he came back out and he was just like, dude, I got to just tell you, man, dude, you make me laugh every day. And it was so, it was so nice. It was so cool. I was just like, wow, that's, that's really nice to have the respect of your peers. You know, it's just, just some, I, I'm just really fortunate. I get to make people laugh and I get to, you know, I, I, I get to, I get to play and it's just, you know, if I'm not on camera ever again, who cares? I'm still getting to play. I'm still getting to, you know, do do voices and stuff for cartoons and, and video games. And, and I go to conventions and just hang out. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a good life. <laughs> Excellent. Well, John DiMaggio, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And, uh, and I'd love to do it again sometime. If, uh, who knows? Um, if I produce another voiceover movie <laughs> you just talk yourself out of that one haven't you I know I just talk myself right back into it damn <laughs>
That was John DiMaggio, star of Futurama, Adventure Time, and many other shows, and uh, producer of the documentary I Know That Voice. Uh, yeah. Which is out on iTunes now, so I thoroughly recommend that uh, you can go and download it, yeah. Go get it. Well, goodbyes are always difficult, but alas, we can't always be here for you. And so ends another Squiggly Podcast. Many thanks to John DiMaggio. You can follow him on Twitter at the John DiMaggio. You can find out more about his documentary, I Know That Voice, at IKnowThatVoice.com and Facebook.com forward slash IKnowThatVoice. And don't forget, it's on iTunes now. Also, thank you to the very gifted Kirsten Lepore for taking the time to talk with us. She is at Kirsten Lepore on Twitter, and you can check out her work on KirstenLepore.com, KirstenLepore.tumblr.com, Facebook.com slash KirstenLepore, and Vimeo.com slash KirstenLepore. She's all over the place. Also, thank you to our guest interviewer, Laura Beth Cowley. Find her at Laura-BethCowleyArt.blogspot.com. The Squiggly Podcast is presented by Steve Henderson and Ben Mitchell. It is produced and edited by Ben Mitchell with music by Wes Allard and Ben Mitchell. You can follow us on Twitter at Squiggly. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. You can like us on Facebook, Squiggly Magazine. For all the latest news, reviews, and interviews, don't forget to check out squiggly.com. And you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Ben Mitchell Creative. And please check out my graphic novel series, Throat, throatbook.com, book two, out now. And don't forget to swing by our special Bristol event with Cinemi, Love, Lust, and Libido at the Tobacco Factory Brewery Theatre, March 17th, 8pm. For more information, check out tobaccofactorytheatres.com and cinemefilms.com. So until next month, go about your business. Music